Thank you for joining Marianne and the Professor. Uh, this morning, I am joined by Dr. William Mackis, who is an Alberta physician. Um, Dr. Mackis, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me this morning. Thank you. So Dr. Mackis, bring us up to speed on who you are as a physician, what's your specialty, and just a little bit about you. Certainly. Um, I obtained my medical degree um, at McGill University. Uh, prior to that, um, I had a bachelor degree in uh, immunology so at the University of Toronto. So I spent four years studying immunology at University of Toronto, um, obtained my medical degree at McGill in, um, in Montreal, and I did my medical specialty in uh, nuclear medicine, radiology, and oncology. Uh, also at McGill University. Uh, at the time, McGill University was considered the best and strongest uh, medical school in Canada. Um, and I've been practicing, um, you know, as a nuclear medicine physician since then. I was the director of the nuclear medicine program um, at the Brandon Regional Health Center in Manitoba for three years. Um, and then I moved to Edmonton, Alberta to take over a large uh, cancer treatment program um, that um, was being conducted at the Cross Cancer Institute in Edmonton, where we treated uh, end-stage cancer patients, neuroendocrine cancer patients uh, with cutting-edge cancer treatments, uh, medical isotope treatments that were developed uh, in Europe and that have a very high um, response rate and cure rate for end-stage cancer patients. Um, so I took over this large cancer program in 2013, we grew this program. It became the largest program of its kind in North America. Uh, we were the referral center uh, for all of Canada. I had patients sent to me from all over Canada, patients that had no other uh, treatment options, uh, stage four and stage cancer patients. Um, and we saved about 85% of these patients. Uh, we either halted their cancer um, progression or we uh, eliminated their their cancer completely. And so I directed uh, this program for approximately two years. Okay, so let's jump into today. Um, currently, you are quite famous for being very outspoken on physician deaths in Canada. And from what I understand, Canada is the only country that uh, is making a noise about the epic number of, of physician deaths. But tell me, tell me what transpired, that something drew your attention to this issue. Yeah, this issue came up uh, last year, actually. Um, in late last year, there were two physicians who had um, died suddenly in their sleep very shortly after their booster shot. And fortunately, uh, first of them was actually heavily publicized in the media. This was Dr. Sohrab Luchmedial, 52-year-old cardiologist from New Brunswick, um, who, had, uh, who was very active on Twitter. Um, he was very pro-vaccine, and he was very um, vocal uh, about being angry at people who refused to get vaccinated or people who were discouraging others from getting vaccinated. And so he made a number of posts that, you know, were quite viral, uh, where he talked about wanting to punch unvaccinated people in the face, uh, saying things that like, you know, if they die, he wouldn't cry at their funeral. Um, and so he was quite known uh, on Twitter uh, for his vaccine activism. He was one of the first uh, doctors in Canada to go get his booster shot. 
he got his uh, first booster shot on October 24th, um, 2021. And um, I remember he posted about it on, on Facebook and people were asking him, how did you get your hands on the booster shot? It hadn't been rolled out yet. So other healthcare workers were asking, how did you get, how did you get your hands on the booster shot? Uh, and he said, you know, the booster shot went great, two thumbs up. And two weeks later, he died in his sleep. He had no prior um, health conditions that anyone knew of. Um, and he, he really looked, you know, very healthy, very, you know, strong, you know, young looking person died in his sleep. Now, the mainstream media published this, uh, but didn't talk about his vaccine status and didn't talk about the fact that just two weeks prior, he had taken his booster shot. And then two weeks later, he died in his sleep. So that was the first death that really caught my attention. Um, and then I thought, okay, something is really wrong here. Uh, doc, you know, people don't just die in their sleep, you know, and it's, it's a young doctor, right? A cardiologist on top of that. We already knew that there were athletes that were having cardiac issues uh, post-vaccination. There were athletes that, you know, had already been collapsing on, you know, soccer fields, on, uh, you know, in, in the hockey arenas, um, you know, in rugby, um, you know, there was a cricket star that that had died um, as well, a famous cricket player. So uh, we already knew this was an issue. Um, but really, it was the second death that really uh, spurred me on to, to start talking about this. The second death was a 48-year-old family physician in Toronto, Dr. Neil Singh Dalla. And he took a booster shot. And uh, three days later, he was at his friend's house for a um, Christmas Eve party. And he was feeling unwell. He lied down on his couch uh, and he died in his sleep. He was 48 years old. Again, no prior condition. And the reason we know about this is because a family friend um, had posted a TikTok on Twitter describing the situation that he'd taken his booster shot, you know, then a few days later died in his sleep. And he claimed that, you know, the autopsy had showed myocarditis. Uh, that he had not known about, the family had not known about. Um, so, and 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 that TikTok video went viral. So I took those two deaths um, and I posted it on my Twitter account and I started raising the alarm. Uh, this was December of 2021. And this was the first time that, you know, anyone really started talking about young doctors dying in Canada. Um, and so I, I started raising the alarm. Uh, my initial posts started going viral. Um, and I had, you know, I had 13,000 followers on Twitter, so I had a fairly wide reach. Um, and, you know, it started kept catching people's attention, but it was only two people. And, you know, then the topic sort of quietly went away. Um, and then unfortunately, in March of 2022, Twitter um, terminated my account because I raised concerns about mRNA vaccine efficacy in children 5 to 11 years old. There was a CNBC article that quoted a, a research study that showed that the efficacy was very low, that after a few months, the efficacy in kids 5 to 11 of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine dropped to 12%, and that by six months, the vaccine efficacy was actually negative, which means that the kids who got the vaccine were getting sick more frequently than the kids who didn't get the vaccine. And uh, Twitter considered this uh, enough to terminate my account completely. So all my posts, Twitter posts disappeared. Once Twitter shuts down your account, all your posts disappear. And so this, this, all my posts about doctors dying had disappeared. Um, and really the topic didn't resurface until July of this year when doctors just started dying one after the other. 
And uh, we had three doctors in Ontario from the same hospital who had died within days of each other after the rollout of the second booster shot. And, you know, that's when the topic really exploded. I went back, uh, I dove into my files, I started researching it. And at first I had found 13 doctors who had died suddenly or unexpectedly. I put that out, uh, that went viral. Um, then I did an update in September. Um, just this past September, I had found 32 doctors that had died suddenly or unexpectedly and that drew even more attention and then just recently i've put out my latest update and the number unfortunately now is uh, 80 doctors who have died suddenly or unexpectedly since the rollout of the covid vaccines so where are you sourcing this information on physician deaths so uh initially um i had sourced it from you know obituaries and and uh, media articles um that you know were written about some of the doctors uh, now of course they will always uh not talk about the vaccination status of the doctors because it doesn't you know fit with the narrative but um that was my sort of initial source was sort of publicly available obituaries however um after uh, I released my report uh, of the 32 doctors who had died suddenly in the beginning of September. Um, I received a tremendous response uh, to that, and a number of people uh, offered to to help me and and really offered their their time and and services to do a lot more investigative work. Um, and one gentleman in particular uh, who wishes to remain anonymous, uh, but his name is his Michael. Um, he had actually uh, put together a, a huge database of every doctor death that's happened in Canada in the past four years. Um, he created, you know, a, a spreadsheet, collected all the information, and basically the, the information has been sourced. Um, most of it has been sourced from the Canadian Medical Association's own website. Mm -hmm. So the Canadian Medical Association keeps an in-memoriam page. Um, that is updated, you know, fairly regularly. And um, and they have, you know, doctor deaths that they announce on there. And then, you know, the family can submit information about the doctor, about their life and about their accomplishments and so on. Now, what's interesting is that uh, this gentleman had to use the Wayback Machine to collect a lot of this data and information because the Canadian Medical Association has been deleting this information quietly from their website. And, and what we've realized is that the Canadian Medical Association has deleted doctor deaths going back to 2019 and 2020. And it seems like they really don't want Canadians to be able to go back and compare for themselves to see, okay, you know, we have so many young doctors dying, you know, this year and last year. Why is this happening? Is this unusual? Is this, uh, you know, are these deaths happening more frequently than before? So he actually managed to recover a lot of data that had been deleted uh, deliberately by the Canadian Medical Association. So uh, we have a database of 1,638 doctors who have died in the past four years. This is the largest da database of its kind that, that, that I've, I know of. 970 of those were sourced directly from the Canadian Medical Association, uh, either you know, data that they haven't deleted yet uh, or data that they deleted but was recovered with the Wayback Machine. The remaining 660 were obtained from, from other official medical sources, 
the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, which is located in Ottawa, has their own in memoriam page. We've we've sourced that information. Uh, the provincial medical associations, uh, the colleges, uh, the provincial colleges of physicians and surgeons uh, who maintain information on doctor licenses, sometimes they will write that a doctor is deceased and that's why they're, you know, canceling their medical license. So we obtained that information. Uh, and also we've sourced information from medical schools across Canada and uh, medical school alumni associations. So, for example, I graduated from McGill University. I'm a member of the McGill University Alumni Association. If I were to die, uh, the, Med the McGill University Alumni Association would say, you know, uh, our former McGill graduate, Dr. Mack, has died. Um, so we sourced that information as well. So, so all of the uh, doctor deaths were sourced from official medical sources. Now, of course, we then went and cross-referenced uh, everything with available obituaries, publicly available obituaries, and any other uh, information that may be available online. Uh, that's been put into the database as well. So I've spent the last two months reviewing this database of 1,638 doctor deaths that have happened over the last four years. And I've went through each of them one by one. Um, you know, I, I have a cutoff of age 70 because that's usually the age when doctors retire. Um, and, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, these are actively practicing doctors uh, which means that they would have been subjected to COVID vaccine mandates uh, in order to continue uh, working uh, as physicians in Canada. And so when I reviewed the database, you know, in the past two months, that's where the number of 80, you know, young Canadian doctors dying suddenly or unexpectedly comes from. There is an additional 60 doctors who have died um, who had pre-existing medical conditions um, that predate the rollout of the vaccines. So they may have had a cancer diagnosis prior to the rollout of the vaccines, um, or they were diagnosed with ALS, Parkinson's disease, dementia, or other chronic illnesses. And I did not include those in the 80s. So that's a separate uh, group of physicians who have died uh, who had pre-existing known conditions and whose passing wasn't considered sudden or unexpected. Um, and so you have 80 who are sudden and unexpected. You have 60 who had you know, prior medical conditions that they were uh, suffering with. And, and, and so this is where the data comes from. So can you expand on your findings uh, specifically, the age categories and, and the differences between the uh, since the vaccine rollout and prior prior years as comparison, the COVID vaccine rollout um, started in in early December of 2020. So I so I did not uh, you know consider sort of anything you know before that. Um, you know this is strictly since the rollout of of the vaccines, um, and what what we found was that. Um, you see an increase in deaths since the rollout of the vaccine across every age bracket. Uh, you see it in men, you see it in women. Um, however, the younger you get, the more pronounced uh, or the more increased the deaths, uh, the rate of deaths is. Um, so when you look at all doctors under the age of 50 um, who've died suddenly or unexpectedly, um, well, just if you look at all doctors under the age of 50, sorry, to, I have to correct myself, um, the, 
doctors are dying at double the rate that they were dying in 2019 and 2020. So in 2021, the rate was double. And in 2022, the rate will also be double. Um, now, if you think about it, we're comparing to 2019, which was pre-pandemic, but we're also comparing to 2020 when you had, um, you know, the pandemic was raging, you had several waves um, of the COVID pandemic, and we're still at double the rate of deaths compared to the pandemic year as well. Um, now, that gets much worse the younger you get. Uh, if you look at all doctors under the age of 40, the mortality rate is five times higher this year compared to 2019 or 2020. And when you look at all doctors under the age of 30, they're dying at a rate eight times as high compared to 2019 and 2020. So this is really the shocking, uh, the shocking statistic. We we have the information. Um, you know, this is this is very solid uh, data. And, um, you know, it's, it's when, when I get attacked for, for just raising concerns about this uh, online, and usually I get attacked, um, you know, by, by doctors who are pushing the mRNA vaccines um, very aggressively. Um, at first, they attacked me saying, well, you know, you have nothing to compare to and doctors die all the time. Okay, well, now that argument no longer holds. We, we have very, very solid data going back for the past four years. We have pre-pandemic data. We have data from 2020, which was, you know, uh, the pandemic year. And this is just something that you, you can't ignore or sweep under the rug. And I would just like to raise another point is that um, McMaster University came out last month and admitted publicly that three of their medical students and medical residents had died suddenly or unexpectedly this past summer. Now, this is one medical school in Canada reporting that three of their medical students died just this past summer. Um, I mean, it, it's absolutely unprecedented. I've never heard of this in my career, and 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 I would really, you know, uh, lean on on everybody else in in medicine, whether doctor, nurse, or healthcare worker if they've heard you know, anything like this before, where you have three students dying from the same medical school in the same summer. And, and you know, if you look at the ages of these medical students, Dr. Matthew Foss, 32 years old, anesthesiology resident. You have Dr. Candice Naiman, 27 years old, pediatrics resident. And then you have Dr. Satyan Choudhury, 25 years old, family medicine resident in his very first year of residency. All of them dying suddenly, unexpectedly, you know, out of the blue. And, you know, I've got other young residents in my database. And, and, and so this for me is, is truly, you know, when I see uh, doctors, other doctors online on Twitter who've made their careers selling Pfizer and mRNA vaccines, uh, mocking this and making fun of this, saying this is fake, this is nonsense, this is made up. I mean, it, it, it honestly, it makes me sick to my stomach that any doctor um, or any healthcare worker would think that this is a joke, that that young doctors dying, you know, in their own profession, that that is something to to laugh about or, or to make fun of. You know, we have this group of doctors in Alberta called the Alberta MD War Room, uh, and they're basically, you know, political activists, um, you know, who back the NDP government, Rachel Notley's, um, you know, NDP party, 
and they are just mocking this and making fun of this. They're making fun of these deaths. Uh, and it's truly, it's just, to me, it, it's absolutely disgusting. How, how do you explain that response? What do you think is going on? Honestly, it's one, um, thing to, it's one thing to ignore it. Yeah. And to bury your head in the sand, but it's quite another to mock it. It is. And, and you know, I'm sort of, um, you know, I'm reminded of that quote, you know, first they ignore you, then, you know, they make fun of you, then they're, you know, then they fight you, you know, and then you win. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really, we really seem to be going through this sort of process where, you know, this has been ignored for a very long time. I mean, the first death in this list of 80 young doctors dying is in uh, at the end of December of 2020. This was a 48 year old um, Vancouver obstetrician um, who would have uh, had her first shot uh, and she died uh, unexpectedly um, at her home. Um, and, and so, you know, this has been going on for almost two years. Uh, now, you know, the fact that I'm raising awareness of it now, you know, doesn't mean that this this hasn't been a problem for the past two years. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I just happened to be the person who put put it together and is speaking about it because I can, because the college can't threaten my license. Um, you know, the health authorities can't threaten my job or can't threaten my hospital privileges. So I'm talking about this because I can, because other doctors can't. And so now do for you, these, do you have then doctors who are quietly approaching you in shock and encouraging you along or suggesting that they see the pattern as well, but they can't say anything? What's been the response of doctors that have reached out to you? Well, so I would separate it uh, in this way. You have doctors internationally who are reaching out to me and thanking me, um, you know, for bringing this uh, to the public and, and really bringing it to their attention. I've had thank you letters. Usually they contact me through my LinkedIn. I've had doctors reach out to me just yesterday. I had a doctor from Barcelona, Spain, thanking me for, you know, for talking about this. I've had doctors from Germany, South Africa, India. Um, you know, it's amazing when these doctors reach out to you and, and they've seen this information and they say, thank you. Yes, you know, this, you know, this has to be talked about. This is a problem, you know, and then you have the Canadian doctors, um, like I said, the ones who are active on social media who are just uh, and, and they're really they can't attack the information. All they can say is this is fake. OK, fine. I mean, that's, you know, you know, mm -hmm. all of this is available information. People can verify that these are real doctors who died. But, you know, they can say that it, it's fake or whatever. But what they end up doing is because they can't debate the information itself, then they'll start doing personal attacks. Mm -hmm. And so what you'll see on Twitter right now, the Canadian doctors who are responding to this, all they're doing is, is engaging in personal attacks. Um, I actually compiled on my Getter account this morning uh, a number of posts from Canadian doctors, very active online, who are basically just, you know, smearing me personally um, and, and trying to, you know, destroy my reputation rather than discuss what's actually happening to Canada's doctors and the fact that the Canada's doctors are dying. Now, the response from the Canadian Medical Association and their leadership, who are all doctors, has been complete silence. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to address it. Um, the current Canadian Medical Association president, Dr. Alika Lafontaine, 
who is uh, actually a doctor from Alberta, and he's the first Indigenous uh, president of the Canadian Medical Association. He has completely ignored this topic, ignored both of my letters that I've sent to him. I've sent him this information. I've sent him this data, the photographs of the doctors who've died and all the information about them, and they've completely ignored it. And, and what's ironic is that um, he continues to push the mRNA vaccines um, and he continues to talk about, you know, um, you know, restructuring healthcare and creating a new modern healthcare system. And he's ignoring, you know, doctors dropping dead left and right. He just went, he just flew down to Orlando, Florida, where he co-hosted an international conference on physician health. Now, you think I'm, I'm joking about this, but I'm not. It's the Canadian Medical Association has just co-hosted the International Conference on Physician Health from October 13 to 15 in Orlando, Florida, where they gave a lot of talks about physician burnout and stress in healthcare and racism in healthcare and inclusion, diversity, and what have you, the, you know, the, the typical leftist buzzwords. Uh, and the one thing that they didn't talk about is Canadian doctors dying suddenly or unexpectedly in record numbers? Um, and really, our young doctors, our medical residents who are dropping dead at eight times the rate compared to pre-pandemic uh, era, uh, not a single word uh, from them about this. So they're choosing the option to stay silent. Mm -hmm. However, the other doctors who are pushing mRNA vaccines on Twitter, uh, they've turned really to anger and mockery uh, of these deaths, which I just find, you know, very distasteful and, and disgusting. I mean, if you don't believe it, that's one thing you could say, you know, I, you know, I, I don't believe this or, or, you know, I don't want to comment on this, but to go out of your way to mock these people's deaths, um, I just find that truly reprehensible. And yeah, I mean, you should have been the keynote speaker at that conference. I would have never got that physician help. The irony is that you were not invited to speak and address the group on the most pressing matter of the day for physician health. It's, it's how can you explain this? Exactly. Um, tell me about the College of Physicians. Would they, ha have they had, have you had any interaction with them or had any response from them? I've had no response um, on this matter uh, from the college. And of course, they haven't addressed it as well. They have a presence on, on Twitter uh, and they're pretending like this is not happening. Now, I'll tell you an interesting thing about the college that happened to me last year. Um, the, I had, I had co-signed a letter that was uh, sent by several hundred healthcare workers to the Alberta Health Services CEO, Dr. Vern Ayu, in opposition to the COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Now, Dr. Vern Ayu, who was the CEO of Alberta Health Services, um, she came out, uh, said, I will implement a COVID vaccine mandate. There was tremendous opposition to it. Uh, and she did it very aggressively, unilaterally, really with no input from the government, no input from anybody. She just came out one day in the media and said, I'm going to do this and everyone has to get vaccinated by October 16, 2021, or you're going to lose your job. Um, there was there was no pushback from the provincial government, from Jason Kenney, uh, Tyler Shandra, who was the health minister at the time. Uh, they went missing in action. Uh, and so we had this really sudden, out of the blue, aggressive push to get every single doctor triple vaccinated 
um, or at least double vaccinated by um, you know October 16, 2021. And so there were a lot of healthcare workers, obviously, who were very concerned about this and who were opposed to this. Um, and what ended up happening was there was um, 26,000 healthcare workers out of the 105,000 that are working in Alberta refused to submit their vaccination status uh, by the deadline, 26,000. So that represents, uh, you know, more than 25% of, of the workforce. Um, and, you know, a number of us had sent a letter in opposition to the vaccine mandates to the HSCO. Now, of course, she didn't respond to the letter, but what, what happened was I received a threatening email from the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta saying, uh, listen, Dr. Mackis, we now have received information that you co-signed this letter. Uh, it's going to be put on your record. Now, at, at the time, I was, re I, I was retired. Um, so to have the college send me a threatening email with my license number, which is expired, and threatening me and saying, we're going to put this on your record, um, you know, I was shocked. And, and, and what they said additionally in their threatening email was that, um, you know, if uh, you signed this letter by mistake, or if you co-signed this letter, um, or if you didn't sign this letter, then we'll give you a chance to say so, and then we'll put that also on your record. Um, so they were basically giving an, a way out for doctors to backtrack and basically uh, say, no, no, I didn't sign this letter in opposition to vaccine mandates. It was, you know, it was an implicit threat that, A, this is already going to be on your record. But if you want to backtrack and say that you weren't in opposition to vaccine mandates, then they would accept that and put that on your record also. Now, imagine this is the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta sending threatening emails and letters to any doctor in Alberta who was in opposition to these vaccine mandates, which were unscientific, grossly unethical, uh, and extremely harmful, as, as we found out. And now, you know, we've got young doctors, you know, dropping dead left and right uh, because they were forced uh, into vaccine mandates and into, you know, multiple vaccinations, uh, mRNA vaccinations. And the college is going around threatening any doctor who would even voice, uh, you know, just just co-sign a letter in opposition to it. Um, so that was my experience with the college, uh, you know, during the pandemic. So what what is behind the college? Who, who is who is at the helm? Who is pushing this agenda? You have twenty five percent of doctors who are or medical workers who are uncomfortable with the vaccine and have expressed this. And then the college comes back, comes back and bullies you. Who's behind the college, or who's at the helm that's pushing this uh, dark agenda? So the college is very interesting. Um, what most Canadians don't know is that every college of physicians and surgeons um, in the country, um, every college is a private corporation. Um, and, and so I only found this out um, when I tried to file freedom of information requests um, at the college to obtain some documents uh, pertaining to me. I was told that you cannot file freedom of information requests against the college because it's not a public entity, it's a private corporation and you have to go through a completely different system. Now the colleges exist because the provincial governments in the past gave uh, the medical specialty the 
privilege and the ability to regulate itself. So this is called self-regulation of medicine. And the, the idea behind it was that, you know, that only doctors know who is, let's say, qualified, properly qualified and licensed um, to practice in the province. And so doctors should be the ones making these assessments, you know, who is fit to practice medicine in Alberta and who isn't properly trained or properly qualified, what can they practice, what, what they can't. So the provincial government created the colleges for the purpose so that doctors could regulate themselves, doctors could regulate other doctors and make sure that, you know, medicine was being practiced properly in the province. Now, this, uh, every province has a law. Um, in Alberta, it's called the Health Professions Act. Uh, but every province has a version of this, which basically creates the college and then governs the college or, or at least prescribes how the college should be governed. Now, unfortunately, over the years, these colleges um, have become highly politicized. Um, and so now you, you have colleges that on paper, at least on the surface, uh, it would seem like they're run by doctors. You know, the, the head of the college is supposed to be the college registrar, that's a doctor. Um, the college is supposed to be run by the college council, and that's usually a group of, you know, six, seven, or eight doctors as well. But the reality is that the colleges are run by lawyers. Um, and lawyers control every legal process that happens at the college. And, and I've had extensive experience with this. Um, so what will happen is, is you'll have a lawyer who will, you know, create a, a document and then they'll put it in front of the doctor at the college and then the doctor will just have to rubber stamp it. Um, in fact, I've had private communications uh, with patients who've had, you know, told me that, you know, the college registrar in Alberta admitted to them that he has no con control at the college, that basically the lawyers run everything, and that if he spoke up about anything, that that would be the end of his career, that really he has to sign whatever the lawyers put in front of him. Um, and so this is true of every thing that happens at the college. So when the college comes out and says, listen, you doctors can't prescribe ivermectin, you can't prescribe hydroxychloroquine, you can't prescribe other early treatments for that might have saved COVID patients. Again, that came from lawyers. Um, and, you know, this was sort of signed off on by the doctors heading the college, but it's all mediated by lawyers. When the college attacked my medical license uh, for speaking about, about corruption at Alberta Health Services and really corruption in healthcare in Alberta, it was the lawyers that really uh, negotiated the entire process of attacking my medical license, dragging me through, you know, fraudulent uh, hearings at the college, and then, you know, really making sure that, you know, that I couldn't practice medicine in Alberta. That was all done by the lawyers. There was no well, input from anybody. Who are, who are these lawyers? Do you know who these individuals are? There's, there's a number of lawyers who work for the college. The, the head lawyer for the college is an individual named Mr. Craig Boyer, who has been a lawyer for the college for the past 15 years. Um, what is interesting about this um, is that um, he has worked as the head lawyer for the college through multiple governments. So when the governments change in Alberta, um, you know, we'll have a government that wants to take healthcare in a brand new direction, but you have a lawyer controlling the college 
you know, who's been there for, you know, several decades, uh, who controls everything that happens at the college. Um, and really the college does, does their own thing. They, they don't take direction from the government at all. Um, interestingly, Craig Boyer's father um, was also a lawyer, Donald Boyer, and he controlled uh, processes at the same College of Physicians and Surgeons in Alberta, going back another 30 years before that. So what you have here is a family of lawyers who've controlled every legal process in Alberta at the college for the past 40 years, going back into the 1970s. Uh, and it really seems that the son inherited the practice of his father. Um, and you can see the college going after doctors, you know, his dad going after doctors, you know, way back into the 70s. Um, and, and so that becomes very concerning. You know, how can you have one family of wealthy Alberta lawyers controlling really the medical license? of 11,000 doctors in Alberta. Well, it's outrageous. It sounds like medical a medical mafia. And I guess my concern yeah. is we're under the impression that these College of Physicians are a public entity. And yes. here you discover they're private. So they're this, private is this is like a little mini who, a World Health Organization on a micro level, and they're private organizations. That is, I don't think that that information is in the public domain. And then to realize that it is lawyers who are calling the shots and not physicians. And these lawyers are immune, you know, and they're not, they, they exactly. wield incredible power, but how do they land in that position? They just are and have been for the last 50 years, the same family. That same family. Is, and it's interesting. It's interesting because what you'll see is that you know these lawyers, they're heavily connected to the healthcare um, leadership. Um, so, for example, Alberta Health Services is run by eleven executives. You have the Alberta Health Services CEO, that's the public figure, and it it was Dr. Verna Yu for the past since two thousand fifteen, and she was she had deep political connections to the Alberta NDP government and to the Trudeau Liberal government. Uh, she was actually voted by a liberal magazine, the second most powerful doctor in Canada after Dr. Theresa Tam. And why is she the second most powerful doctor in Canada? Because she was the head of the largest health authority in Canada. In fact, it may be the largest health authority in North America. Alberta Health Services is is a massive organization. It employs 105,000 healthcare workers, and it's the only health authority in Alberta. This isn't like BC, where you have five different health authorities. You know, we have one health authority that controls everything that happens in the province. And Alberta Health Services receives, you know, I think it's now up to $23 billion a year from the provincial government, um, which is half of the provincial budget. So if you if you imagine the provincial government, you know, which collects taxes from every Albertan, half of the money that's that's that the provincial government allocates every single year is given to Alberta Health Services, and that money goes into a black hole. It is managed by these 11 executives who are really not answerable to the government. Um, you know, they, they are their own entity. And now they have friends at the College of Physicians who really is their sort of their their strong arm, their their you know their right hand sort of like a 
like, like almost like a military, you know, uh, branch who enforce, um, you know, edicts against doctors, preventing them from, let's say, treating COVID patients, preventing them from writing vaccine exemption letters, mask exemption letters, uh, and just, you know, issuing these autocratic, unscientific edicts uh, where they can just call this uh, one lawyer family and say, okay, um, if we're having a problem with, let's say, Dr. Mack is speaking out, okay, damage his medical license and make sure he can never practice again. I've spent many, many years battling with this legal family. And, and I came to realize um, through my legal battles with these college lawyers is that they really seem to be above the law. Uh, they really seem to be, you know, they don't answer to the provincial government. Um, they seem to have very deep relationships with the executives of the, the health authorities. Um, and those healthcare executives uh, also seem to ignore the provincial government as well. Um, you know, we had uh, the Alberta Health Services CEO, Dr. Verna Yu, routinely come out during press conferences during COVID-19 and completely ignore uh, what the provincial government was asking her to do. In fact, Jason Kenney, just before he's been kicked out of office um, and was forced to resign because he was so unpopular, Jason Kenney actually came on the record and he said that the Alberta Health Services CEO had lied to him repeatedly throughout the pandemic. They had lied to him about the availability of ICU beds. They had lied to him about the COVID death statistics. They were constantly manipulating the COVID death statistics data. And he said that, you know, he gave them money and he wanted them to increase the ICU capacity and they refused to do so in order to make the government look bad because they have deep ties to the Alberta NDP and they're just biding their time hoping that the, you know, Rachel Notley's NDP government gets back into power in 2023. So, you know, how can you have a college that's a private corporation run by a, a, a lawyer mafia family for the lack of a better word. And then you have health authority executives who who basically, you know, lie to the premier of the province of Alberta, you know, give him false, false COVID statistics, lie about ICU bed availability. And, and, and really they receive $23 billion every year from the government. And then they tell the government to F off and, you know, they'll, they're gonna do their own thing during the pandemic. When, when Verna Yu said, you know, we're going to push vaccine mandates and get every healthcare vaccinated by October 16, 2021, Jason Kenney didn't say one word in opposition. He didn't dare. He didn't dare to speak up and say, no, we're not going to do that. These mandates are illegal. They're unethical. They're unscientific. We need to protect our healthcare workers and not have them subjected to experimental mRNA treatments. He didn't dare say that. You know, and in fact, you know, there's this uh, video circulating uh, of the Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who made a joke, but it was a very serious joke when he said that if you go against the edicts of the public health officials, you know, you might as well, uh, you know, you know, tie a rope to your neck and jump off a bridge. And people thought that that was a joke, but, you know, I think he was, you know, being at least partially serious, is that these healthcare executives really seem to be above the law, and, and they, they seem to do what they please. Well, all, I guess another question that I have is that the College of Physicians or these health executives, what is their relationship to Big Pharma? 
Exactly. So um, I would say that the lawyers have very, you know, deep connections um, to the health healthcare executives of the province. Um, and so they really take orders from the healthcare executives. And now the healthcare executives are the ones that have very deep connections to big pharma and not just big pharma, but also big construction companies, because uh, a lot of the healthcare money is actually in, you know, building gigantic hospitals and gigantic cancer centers. And I'll give you an example of this. So in Alberta, for example, we have um, a company called PCL Construction, which is one of the largest construction firms uh, in the world. It's it's certainly it's it's it may be the largest construction firm in Canada or one of the largest. I think at some point, uh, you know, they had ten billion dollars in construction projects ongoing right now. Uh, they're actually repairing the um, Toronto Pearson International Airport. So they have projects all over Canada. Now, when the NDP government came into power, um, they sacked several healthcare executives who were not on board with NDP and, and really then the Trudeau Liberal government, which got elected shortly after in 2015. And they, they put new healthcare executives in place. And what those healthcare executives did was they started issuing multi-billion dollar contracts to one entity, PCL Construction. And what we saw in uh, from 2015 to 2019 in Alberta, for example, is we saw a $1.6 billion contract awarded by AHS to PCL Construction to build a new uh, Calgary Cancer Center in Calgary, and this cancer center is actually opening soon. I think it, it opens next year. Gigantic complex, uh, $1.6 billion project. That was actually the first money that was allocated when Rachel Notley was appointed uh, Premier of Alberta. She didn't address you know, skyrocketing wait times. Uh, she didn't address surgical backlogs. She didn't address backlogs in diagnostic imaging and radiology where you have to wait a year or two to get an MRI. Uh, or you have to wait, you know, two years to get hip, hip, hip replacement surgery. The very her very first act in government in healthcare was to award a 1.6 billion dollar contract to PCL Construction. The NDP government then went on to push through a new hospital in the south of Edmonton at a cost of two billion dollars. Now we have hospitals that are crumbling in Edmonton. We have the Royal Alexandra Hospital that needs several billion dollars in repairs and upgrades. We have the Misericordia Hospital in West Edmonton, uh, and these hospitals are in, in dire need of, of upgrades and, um, and, and construction. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the people who sit on the boards of those hospitals are all conservative. They're all former conservative health ministers, former premiers, and so on. And so here you have uh, NDP government saying, no, Edmonton needs a brand new hospital at a cost of $2 billion. And it was, you know, who it was going to be awarded to, it was going to be awarded to PCL construction. And they had actually, because I live very close by uh, to, the, to the construction side. And so I would drive by and I would see that they had put up all of their signs, PCL construction, they had sealed off multiple intersections and they were going to start working on this $2 billion project. And lastly, um, the NDP government wanted to push through and approved a $600 million super lab uh, that was to be built uh, at the University of Alberta grounds. They were actually going to steal the land uh, that is owned by the University of Alberta that the University of Alberta wanted 
to use for their residents um, to, to build additional you know, living quarters for their own students. The NDP government took this land and said, no, we're going to build a giant $600 million super lab, which was awarded to PCL Construction. Um, you know, in Lethbridge, you've got this new multi-hundred million dollar science wing of the Lethbridge University. Now there's an NDP, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, MLA in Lethbridge that was awarded to PCL Construction. I mean, I can go on, I can go on all day, uh, you know, with this. But, but so what you have is, yes, you have deep connections to Big Pharma, but also, um, you know, there's deep connections to the... Um, you know, to to big companies, corporations um, that are, you know, have these huge building projects where they're awarded, you know, billions and billions of dollars in taxpayer money. And who's making the, the decisions? It's basically the healthcare executives get to decide who gets the contracts. And so that's why they yield so much. That's why they wield so much power is because these executives handle billions and billions of dollars you know, every year goes through their hands and they get to decide who gets a piece of the pie. You know, it's one thing I, I will say about AHS is that the the the, the $23 billion that we give them every year, that feeds a lot of lawyers. It feeds a lot of, you know, accountants. It feeds a lot of corporations, a lot of pharmaceutical companies, a lot of construction companies. So there is, you know, as they always say, follow the money. But where there's big money, there's big corruption, and and we have that in Alberta. So when I started talking about AHS corruption on Twitter in 2018 and 19, a, a funny thing happened to me. Um, I didn't have a lot of followers at the time. You know, I had less than a thousand followers, and and I said, you know, the head of the cancer care, who was uh, appointed by Rachel Notley, he's very corrupt. He sabotaged my cancer program, and he needs to be replaced. Who, now, who he is also, this? Who, who so is this that? was. The, this was Dr. Matthew Parliament. And um, now he's done photo ops with Rachel Notley. Now, here's, here's a very interesting um, story about, about this. Um, he, because he was the head of HS Cancer Care, he was also the head of the new Calgary Cancer Center that was being built by PCL Construction in Calgary. And so when I posted this, that, that he is corrupt and that he has sabotaged cancer programs in Alberta, um, Dr. Matthew Parliament, um, what happened was the following day, um, I noticed that I was blocked by the official Twitter account of PCL Construction. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't it interesting that, you know, I speak out about a, a corrupt healthcare executive whom, you know, the government could have replaced at any time. Uh, and, and yet, you know, then I get blocked by the construction firm that he was involved in, in awarding a $1.6 billion contract to PCL, PCL Construction doesn't know who I am. They, they don't know, they've never interacted with me. And yet their official website blocks me on Twitter. Uh, and, and, you know, really, so they, 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 they wouldn't have to see my posts. Um, so that just goes to show you the level of connectedness that these healthcare executives have, um, you know, not just to Big Pharma, which of course they do have, but also to other, you know, big firms doing business in Alberta and, and construction companies are the main ones. Now, another name that came up when we talked earlier was Dr. Michael Kafaro. Who exactly Kafaro. is that again? 
Dr. Michael Cafaro is the associate registrar of the college, so he really is the second in line to lead the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, but he also um, has a position as the complaints director. Now, as the complaints director, that means that he processes every complaint that's filed by a doctor in Alberta, or he can launch his own complaint against doctors. So he's actually instrumental in censoring and silencing physicians in Alberta and has been for the past um, you know, six years. And um, there's a very interesting story about him. You know, he's, um, he's a family doctor from a small town in Alberta, in Hinton, Alberta. And yet he's managed to find his way into bureaucratic roles. Um, he was one of the leaders of uh, a, a college of another province. I believe it was Yukon uh, for many years. And then he comes and he is parachuted um, again by, by Rachel Notley's government. He was parachuted into the second most powerful role at the college. Um, and he has a very interesting background because his father was a very, very prominent Alberta judge, um, Peter Mario Cafaro. He was actually the Associate Chief Justice of the Provincial Court of Alberta for decades. And he dealt with criminal cases where he, he wielded influence over, over criminal cases in Alberta. So here you have a, you know, a young doctor who actually is part of, a, of, an, of an older lawyer family controlling, again, the medical licenses of every doctor in Alberta so that any doctor who speaks up is attacked by Dr. Michael Cafaro. I've had many doctors, Alberta doctors, come to me privately and say that they were extorted by Dr. Michael Cafaro. They were threatened by Dr. Michael Cafaro. In fact, uh, and I'm not allowed to give his name, but there was one Alberta doctor who committed suicide because he was persecuted by the Dr. Michael Cafaro and the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, who went after his medical license, destroyed his life, and this doctor ended up committing suicide due to the way he was treated by this individual. Now, interestingly, Dr. Michael Cafaro, who you know comes from this very, very prominent uh, lawyer family in Alberta, his personal lawyer at the college is Craig Boyer, who's the head college of the lawyer who basically runs, you know, every legal process at the college. So you have basically a union of two old Alberta legal families, lawyer families, who had deep ties, um, you know, throughout the Alberta's legal system, who are basically running the show. They're, they're controlling. It, it, the it's, it's a medical cartel. It's a medical cartel. Yes. And, and, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's fascinating because you think that this this shouldn't be allowed, this shouldn't be allowed to happen. And yet, you know, these two um, lawyer or lawyer family people, you know, they control really everything, everything that that happens at the college. Um, it's absolutely shocking. Absolutely shocking. Well, uh, let's talk about your new premier, Daniel Smith. What do you think she must be aware of all of this? Or do you think she is aware? Oh, one thing I wanted to just finish on um, that I wanted to add was that, you know, what people don't realize is that Alberta's healthcare system and Alberta's legal system, they're very intertwined. And so you cannot have corruption in healthcare in Alberta 
without the help of Alberta's legal system and participation of Alberta's legal system and Alberta's judicial system. And um, I had actually filed complaints to the Law Society of Alberta against uh, Craig Boyer and what he was doing at the college. He was engaging in illegal activity at the college. I filed extensive documentation and complaints to the Law Society of Alberta and they protected him. They 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 dismissed. They didn't even look at the complaint. They dismissed me with you know one paragraph saying, oh uh, you know there's no evidence of what you're talking about, and he goes he goes free. Now I don't know if you if you or your or your or your viewers are aware, but um, our health minister Tyler Shandro, the the conservative health minister Tyler Shandro during the pandemic, uh, he had uh, terminated the doctor's contract. Um, in early 2020. Now that contract was set to expire in a month anyways, but he terminated it. And um, the healthcare establishment came after him very, very aggressively. Um, they dragged him through the mud. Uh, they accused him of all kinds of things. They accused him that, you know, he yelled at a doctor, um, you know, at his house uh, on his driveway that he got private information, you know, cell phone numbers of doctors and was calling them, you know, in the middle of the night and nonsense like this. And, and very interestingly, um, you know, the, the health minister of Alberta is being dragged through the law society of Alberta, uh, where they're going to try to have his legal license stripped from him. And now this is the same healthcare mafia that, you know, that has deep ties to the Law Society of Alberta, where, you know, the lawyers are effectively running the College of Physicians. So he cancels the doctor's contract, which was the source of a lot of fraud in Alberta. What people don't realize is that HS executives pay themselves $600,000, $700,000 salaries. A lot of those salaries are stolen from physician uh, clinician funds that are intended for patient care. So we have $5.4 billion budget every year that's reserved for doctor salaries to provide patient care. AHS executives who are themselves, some of them doctors, they steal money from this fund to pay themselves obscene salaries to push paper, you know, at the AHS headquarters downtown where they have administrative roles, but they don't see patients and they steal money from this physician uh, fund that's intended for patient care. So what uh, our health minister did was he terminated this contract so that the executives of Alberta Health Services would not be able to steal funds from the physician fund budget. And they destroyed him. Um, you know, the, the, the healthcare mafia came after him. Uh, they have friends in the media that came after him. Um, in fact, um, you know, the, the CBC investigative journalists who are very pro NDP did hit pieces on him, destroyed his career. And now the Law Society is dragging him through tribunals. There was actually a tribunal scheduled this month from three separate complaints where they're trying to strip him of his um, lawyer license. So, you know, I just wanted to kind of wrap that all up to say that really the healthcare corruption really depends in Alberta on the legal system and on the assistance of lawyers, uh, some of whom, you know, have lawyer families going back decades, and really the judicial system as well, because there are college lawyers who end up as judges. Uh, justice Ritu Kular, who is a justice, a brand new justice uh, on the Alberta Court of Appeal, 
served as a college lawyer who was sabotaging the careers of Alberta doctors, uh, including Dr. Al Gamdi, who was an orthopedic surgeon whom the college sabotaged, suspended his license for three years because he couldn't get along with his hospital executives, Alberta Health Services executives, suspended his license for three years and forced him to pay $1 million in fees for the you know, kangaroo court that the college put him through. Now, she was a lawyer for the college, Justice Ritu Kular, and now she's a judge at the Alberta Court of Appeal. And the reason I know this was because one of the, um, one of the legal actions that I had taken against the college was that they covered up uh, complaints I had filed against Alberta Health Services executives, complaints that were covered up by Dr. Michael Cafaro. You know what they did? They put me in front of Justice Ritu Kular, who was a former college lawyer, and she completely crippled my, my case uh, so that my case could not uh, succeed, that particular case, and in order to protect Dr. Michael Cafaro. So I'm, I'm sorry I was a little long-winded about this, but oh, it, I, really, you know, I really want to stress that you know, the, the connections run very deep uh, between healthcare executives who are, of course, in bed with Big Pharma, but it's really the Alberta's legal system and judicial system that makes the corruption possible. Now, switching to Danielle Smith, um, you know, Danielle Smith, uh, when she came out and said that she wants to fire the entire AHS board and she wants to dissolve the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, this was actually unprecedented and really amazing uh, from my perspective. Um, now, the the AHS board has been fired in the past. In 2013, actually, there was a huge scandal that had come out at Alberta Health Services where you know you had just an insane amount of executives, vice presidents. I think we had something like 80 vice presidents at Alberta Health Services who are again who were paying themselves, you know, half a million dollar salaries and up. And in 2013, the provincial conservative government actually sacked the entire Alberta Health Services Board, and they sacked most of the 80 uh, vice presidents and executives at Alberta Health Services. Uh, and then the AHS Board really didn't exist. What you had was you had leaders at Alberta Health Services reporting directly to the, uh, to the Minister of Health. That only lasted for two years until 2015, when Rachel Notley and NDP came into power. And what Rachel Notley did was she reconstituted the Alberta Health Services Board and she filled it with people who were friendly to NDP. And in, in fact, the, the AHS Board was chaired by a former CEO of the Edmonton Journal. And so this is how she ensured media silence by putting a media executive as the head of the board of Alberta Health Services. Now you think, what does a media executive know about running healthcare in Alberta? Probably not very much. Uh, this was Linda Hughes. Um, she was the former um, executive at the Edmonton Journal and Rachel Notley appointed her as board chair. And, and really what happened was the Alberta Health Services board became a rubber stamp uh, for the government, for the provincial government, but also really became just a rubber stamp for the executives at Alberta Health Services who made the decisions. So when Danielle Smith says that she wants to sack the board of Alberta Health Services and really fire the Alberta Health Services CEO and the top executives, this has been done before. This, this has been done in 2013 
you know, it seems like there was an attempt by the conservative government in 2013 to clean up corruption at AHS, but it didn't last long. You know, once NDP got into power, they put their own people in and the corruption just restarted all over again. Um, and so that absolutely can be done. And I think it should be done. Now, when Danielle Smith brought up the issue of dissolving the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, now that is very interesting because that has never been suggested by anybody. And I, I believe the reason that she suggested this is because she is aware of the deep corruption that we have at the college. Um, and I think she's aware that there is a lot of illegal activity that is happening at the college. Now, um, she would also be aware that the college has blocked doctors from treating COVID patients. She would be aware that the college has threatened doctors who have written mask exemption letters and vaccine exemption letters. Um, and she would be aware that the college has threatened any doctor who has been opposed to vaccine mandates that have done so much damage to our healthcare system. So, you know, um, certainly I've been approached uh, by many, many people who've said, you know, that maybe I should apply uh, and, and reach out to Danielle Smith and reach out to the government and, you know, provide my my assistance and my really my knowledge of of the of the legal side of how the college operates to help her in this cleanup. But what I really wanted to mention was that um, just the fact that she brought it up and that it's being discussed is truly unprecedented. And it really hits at the healthcare mafia that we have here in Alberta. And, and it hits at them deeply because it's one thing to fire a healthcare executive. You know, a, a healthcare executive can be bribed, can be bought and sold. Uh, you know, these people are very much for sale uh, to big pharma. And I can say this uh, because, um, you know, you know, I, I trained at McGill. And in Montreal, we don't, you know, we're not very shy talking about uh, corruption and, and really organized crime that, that runs a lot of things in, in Montreal. And there's a very famous story in Montreal of a brand new super hospital that was being built. And the, the contract was awarded to uh, SNC-Lavalin, I believe. And uh, so, you know, SNC-Lavalin has, has, you know, uh, relationships with the Trudeau government, as we know. But what was very interesting was that the two top healthcare executives at McGill, the McGill University Health Center, which awarded this contract, were caught being bribed by SNC-Lavalin. Uh, you know, there were two of them who had received $10 million each in bribes, and, and somehow they got caught. Um, you know, there's a, one of these executives was called Arthur Porter. And, uh, you know, everyone can go and look up this story. It, it made the news. So really corruption in healthcare and bribery and so on is something that, uh, you know, is, is accepted and well known in Montreal, you know, but it, it's a very uh, touchy topic uh, elsewhere in Canada and, and, you know, certainly here in Alberta. So, you know, when I say a healthcare, you know, executive can be bought and sold and corrupted, you know, you know, it's not, uh, to me, it's not controversial at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, she could replace a healthcare executive, that healthcare executive might be bought and sold, but it's different when you have a family, a lawyer family that's been running the college for decades. Now, that's a different story. And if you say that, you know, you're going to dissolve the college and you're effectively going to remove the power that these lawyer families have 
over each of Alberta's 11,000 doctors, now you're talking about hitting at a real center of power, right? And so it, it wouldn't make sense to fire healthcare executives at Alberta Health Services without getting rid of their friends at the college who actually control the license of every doctor in Alberta. You have to do both, yes. right? And I think what's amazing about what Danielle Smith has put out is that she has addressed both of these issues. Um, so that shows that she has a deep understanding of corruption in healthcare in Alberta. Um, for her to come out and really uh, attack both elements of corruption, not just Alberta Health Services, but also the college, which you know both of them have have this combined power that they exercise uh, over healthcare in Alberta. I think it, it shows really that she knows what she's talking about. She knows, and how quickly do you think that she could resurrect a new system? In terms of the college, a new system. yeah. So in terms of the college, now what's happened? Um, to anyone who's paying attention, when she said that she would dissolve the college, um, she was attacked um, from all across Canada and, and from really some surprising sources. You know, you've had journalists in other provinces attacking her. You've had doctors in other provinces attacking her. You, you even had politicians, you know, from other provinces attacking her. You think, why, why would they care about, you know, something that's an internal uh, Alberta issue? Um, you know, the college really it serves Albertans, or at least it's supposed to serve Albertans. You know, this shouldn't require input from, you know, bureaucrats, politicians, and executives from other provinces. Um, and, and so when she talks about dissolving the College of Physicians and Surgeons, that can be done very easily. And people don't realize that this, this um, you know, this college, which is rotten top to bottom, um, I say that it can't be fixed because what you really have is when you have lawyers and lawyer families like Craig Boyer and his family, like Dr. Michael Cafaro and his family, his dad, who was a, a big time judge in Alberta for many, many decades. Um, when you have these kinds of families controlling the college, this is not something you can fix. Okay, you're going to put a new doctor in charge of the college. That doctor is going to have a gun to his head and say, okay, we're going to put, the lawyers are going to put something in front of you and you're going to sign it and that's it, or that's the end of your career. So you can't fix that an institution like this. And on top of that, it's a private corporation. So how are you going to fix a private corporation, right? Now you've got potentially government meddling in a private corporation. I'm sure they're going to arm themselves with, you know, to the teeth with lawyers, so you cannot fix it, um, you know, you cannot fix it internally. What you have to do is you have to scrap the entire institution and you have to start over and replace it with a new one. Now that can be done very, very easily. The College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta exists only because the Health Professions Act gives it the ability to exist. And what we've seen during the pandemic is the Jason Kenney and Tyler Shandro, our health minister, Tyler Shandro, uh, they've made uh, several amendments to the Health Professions Act. Um, you don't even need a new Health Professions Act. All you have to do is make an amendment. You could say that um, as of now, the college no longer exists, no longer functions. It is dissolved um, as of this amendment. And then you put in the amendment that um, you're constituting a new medical board. Uh, in the U.S., they have uh, something called medical boards. So you don't have to call it a college. You can call it a medical board, the Alberta Medical Board. 
is a new medical board that functions like the original college was supposed to, which is that it just makes sure that doctors are properly licensed and accredited to practice medicine safely in Alberta. That's it. You reconstitute a new Alberta medical board and you make it a public entity. So there's no none of this private corporation shenanigans. Um, you know, you make, you know, if it has lawyers, they have to be accountable uh, publicly. Um, and you make it uh, answerable to the health minister of the province. And you put in provisions to really protect uh, doctors and, and to limit the powers of the college to make sure that these powers can't be abused. And you also have to put judicial uh, oversight um, over the college as well. You can create this amendment to the Health Professions Act. You can table it. You can have the readings done within a week. Um, and you can have it proclaimed as law, you know, um, really shortly after. So really within a week or two, you can dissolve the old, corrupt, rotten College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. You can completely eliminate the power that these lawyers and corporations have over doctors in Alberta. You can eliminate it with one amendment to the Health Professions Act, and you can reconstitute a brand new a medical board, the Alberta Medical Board, which is uh, fully answerable to the provincial government and has very strong oversight from the Minister of Health and from Alberta's courts. Mm -hmm. And bam, you've solved the problem. You've solved the problem in one week, maybe two weeks if you want to, you know, give it proper time. Uh, this can be done fairly easily. All you need is good lawyers. And I'm sure, you know, Danielle Smith will have access as the new premier to very good lawyers. Um, who can make this happen? I mean, the UCP government has a majority and they can have this law done within a week or two. And, and you would fix so many problems in Alberta's healthcare systems with just doing that, just fixing the college. Yeah. Now, there's going to be a massive outcry from the corrupt entities that the college has relationships with. So this will be the other corrupt colleges throughout the country because they're, they're all, they all have close relationships with each other. So, for example, when the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta was after me, uh, I was trying to get a license to practice in BC. And what I noticed was that the BC College was stalling um, my application for a license that shouldn't have taken more than one month. They stalled it for six months just to make sure that I was unable to make an income and you know, feed my family and let's say continue pursuing my lawsuits. The, the BC college was stall stalling my license on purpose. Um, so the colleges work together. Um, you know, this is a, this healthcare mafia is really, uh, it's a national mafia. You know, they're all connected to each other. They all work together. They protect each other. Uh, certainly when you saw vaccine mandates being pushed, you saw them pushed across the board. Mm -hmm. right across all provinces it wasn't like there were provinces that you know didn't have vaccine mandates as as what should have been if all of these colleges were independent exactly. you know if these were independent entities you would have one province would have mandates another province wouldn't and let's see what happens you know will the mandates collapse you know the healthcare system or will they improve the healthcare system we don't know because the mandates were implemented across the board at the same time right so Danielle Smith can really take away a lot of the corruption and the power that these healthcare, you know, this healthcare mafia has. 
Um, now she has to do it smartly because she will be viciously attacked for this, but it absolutely can be done. Now, what about Dina Hinshaw? Do you have any opinion on her? I feel that uh, Dina Hinshaw probably received instructions from outside of Alberta uh, because, you know, a lot of her decisions didn't make any sense. Um, you know, you had the, the Alberta Premier, Jason Kenney, come out and say, we will never have vaccine passports. Uh, you know, we will never implement this in Alberta. And then a few months later, you know, he tucks his tail between his legs and he says, okay, we'll, we'll have some, you know, digital ID or, 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 or whatever program he renamed it, but it was best, basically a vaccine passport. Um, and, and so Dr. Hinshaw has, has really been making, you know, bizarre decisions. Um, you know, some of them have been in lockstep with, with other provinces. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting situation because she's supposed to work for the provincial government. And yet, you know, it, it seemed like there was some disconnect between her and the provincial government, which pays her salary, right? And, and so, um, and at the same time, as a doctor, she, she actually has to answer to the Alberta Health Services Chief Medical Officer, who's Dr. Francois Belanger, who was actually appointed by Rachel Notley in 2015 and is one of the most powerful healthcare executives in Alberta at AHS, and she has to answer to him. And what we know is that Dina Henshaw relied on fraudulent pandemic data that was given to her by Alberta Health Services. So, you know, here you have Henshaw that's basically giving us data that's completely wrong. Uh, you know, we had this completely bogus uh, situation where they were uh, calling the pandemic of the unvaccinated, which was completely made up. Uh, she was the one pushing fraudulent information that, you know, 99% of the hospitals were occupied by the unvaccinated, that 99% of, you know, the ICU beds were occupied by the unvaccinated. These were lies. This was fraudulent data. I mean, they were testing unvaccinated patients over and over and over until they got a false positive result. They weren't testing vaccinated patients because they didn't want uh, anyone to know that vaccinated patients started filling up the hospitals. And so that they were basically creating a fraudulent, you know, what they called a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And Dina Hinshaw was complicit in this. Um, so I was actually very surprised that Dina Hinshaw, who was hired by Rachel Notley at the beginning of 2019, and, you know, she has on her staff a doctor from Wuhan, China, um, on her staff uh, as well. And, and I was surprised that when Jason Kenney came into power, that he didn't fire her and appoint his own people. So that makes you wonder why did the Alberta premier... Why was he not able to fire a doctor who works at the Alberta Ministry of Health that is really run by his Minister of Health, Tyler Shandro? Why was he not able to fire her? Why did he keep an individual from Wuhan, China, who no one knows anything about, but we know that this uh, doctor is on Dina Hinshaw's staff? And really what we saw was you know, um, the provincial government actually gave Dina Hinshaw additional powers that, you know, during the pandemic, uh, you know, significant powers that she didn't have uh, prior to that, and that her position is not supposed to have. So there's a lot of questions that need to be asked there.
unfortunately, we had uh, Jason in Jason Kenny. We had an Alberta premier that sold Albertans out uh, to Big Pharma. Jason Kenny went on to be uh, basically a pharmaceutical salesman. He he was pushing the Pfizer vaccine. He was pushing the Moderna vaccine. He wasn't pushing vaccine mandates, but he didn't stand in their way. He allowed them to happen, and he really allowed. Alberta's healthcare system to be crippled and damaged. Um, and so he unfortunately really sold Albertans out. Um, and so when we had uh, the race for UCP leadership, where you had Danielle Smith really as an outsider running against five or six cabinet members from Jason Kenney's own cabinet, I thought, oh my God, you know, if one of Jason Kenney's people win, you know, we're in deep trouble because Jason Kenney has allowed you know, um, the healthcare to be run by uh, entities and individuals who have deep ties to the Trudeau liberal government and, and to the Rachel Notley NDP government. I mean, he allowed Alberta Health Services to be run by Dr. Verna Yu, who was appointed by Rachel Notley, and he allowed her to run AHS for three years during the conservative government. It makes absolutely no sense. All the AHS executives that were in charge of AHS they were all hired by the NDP government. They were given golden contracts by the NDP government lasting five years. Uh, and they are now working beyond the length of their contracts uh, under the conservative government. And now you've got Dina Henshaw, who was hired by NDP, and Jason Kenney kept her on for all three years. Um, so I think, you know, Danielle Smith coming out and saying that she's going to fire Dina Henshaw immediately and replace her with a, a team of individuals, I think, is is brilliant and it has to be done. I mean, Dina Henshaw fumbled the ball uh, during the pandemic, you know, gave us fraudulent data, uh, really fed us lies, kept pushing mRNA vaccines in kids and pregnant women and in and young people who didn't need the vaccines. Uh, you know, she was completely in lockstep, you know, with other provinces. Now, yes, maybe she wasn't as bad or as tyrannical as the public health officials in Ontario or BC, but she was engaging in unprofessional, unethical, unscientific conduct. Uh, I think she actually should be stripped of her medical license and she should be prosecuted in the civil court and criminally. But, you know, Jason Kenney did nothing about mm -hmm. Henshaw. Um, now, Danielle Smith is sacking Henshaw, which I think is the right move. She should actually sack her entire team. Henshaw's entire team has to go. Um, all her chiefs of staffs, advisors, senior advisors, they all have to go. And, and Danielle Smith has to put new people in her place whom she trusts and who are actually competent. I thought Dina Hinshaw was not a competent uh, public health official. So the, uh, the data that was misconstrued, how are you aware of what the real data was? Did that ever get leaked out? As well, we don't get real numbers were? Well, the problem is that we don't get access to the real raw data. Uh, and that's been the problem throughout the entire pandemic. Um, what you saw in the beginning when they were rolling out the vaccine, they really wanted to create a narrative that it was the unvaccinated that were filling the hospitals. And, and this was being done um, so that they could push the vaccine into as many people's arms as possible. And I don't know if, 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 if you're aware, but but what they were doing was for the first two weeks after you were vaccinated, they counted you as unvaccinated. Which now, makes no sense, which makes no sense. It makes no sense medically, but the problem, the real problem with this 
is that most of the deaths that happen as a result of the vaccine, as is documented extensively in the VAERS data in the United States and in the um, UDRA vigilance um, safety data in Europe, the, the majority of the deaths that occur as a result of the vaccine occur in the first 72 hours. Um, so you have people dying of sudden cardiac arrest, you know, you have people dying in their sleep, um, you know, you've had people drop dead at vaccine clinics. Uh, you know, we just had that, you know, um, situation with the old lady in Saskatchewan who dropped dead shortly after vaccination, you know, in the, I think it was the shopper's drug mart. Um, and so the majority of the deaths uh, as a result of the vaccine occur within the first 72 hours. And what happened was those deaths were counted as unvaccinated. So what you have here is data fraud. Uh, data fraud that was committed by Dina Henshaw and in, in collaboration with Alberta Health Services executives, where for the first two weeks after vaccination, you're, you're counted as unvaccinated. And then if you died as a result of the, of the vaccine, you were counted as an unvaccinated death. Maybe they even counted it as a COVID death. I don't know. It's very possible, right? So what do you think the real numbers have been at the hospitals? Honestly, I, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't begin to guess. I mean, I would love to have access to the raw data and to the patient data. But as I said, so this was one issue uh, where they counted for the first 14 days post-vaccination, you were counted as unvaccinated. And then we know that they tested, you know, the unvaccinated completely differently than the vaccinated patients. So, you know, if you showed up at the hospital and you were unvaccinated, as I said, they would test you and test you and test you until they had one of these flaw tests that came back as positive, mm -hmm. which in many cases was probably a false positive. And then, you know, the vaccinated individuals, they would not test them at all. Yeah. And so what you'd end up with is you'd end up with these ridiculous numbers um, where they would claim that, oh, over 90% of the hospitalized patients and patients dying are unvaccinated. And this was data fraud through and through. And, and Dina Hinshaw was complicit in this data fraud. Now, what we saw was they kept putting out those numbers every single day. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but they, you know, we saw those numbers every single day, they would update and update and update. And, and you know, they, they would put out these pie charts and the pie charts would be showing that, you know, the unvaccinated are dying at record, you know, at 90% of them, you know, are unvaccinated who are hospitalized or dying. And then even that fraudulent manipulated data started showing that the, the number of unvaccinated people was dropping and dropping and dropping. And then the number of vaccinated people who were hospitalized and dying was rising and rising and rising. Right. And at some point when the vaccinated uh, people overtook uh, the lead and, you know, you had data showing that, oh, wait, it's 70 percent of hospitalized are vaccinated, 80 percent of hospitalized are vaccinated. Uh, and then you saw that it was the triple vaccinated who were filling up the hospitals, the ICUs and were dying. That's when the provincial governments completely stopped providing the data altogether because the data fraud at that point couldn't even, um, you know, it couldn't overcome mm -hmm. the numbers, the sheer numbers with which the vaccinated were filling the hospitals, ICUs, and were dying. So instead of trying to continually 
massage and manipulate the data, they just gave up on it altogether and they stopped issuing the data altogether. And, and Dina Hinshaw was complicit in this data fraud uh, ever since it started uh, until they pulled the data a couple of months ago. Um, well, so how, how bleak do you think the picture is for the vaccinated? If it, what would be your guesstimate as to what the situation is if you could see the raw data? Well, if we're looking at hospitalizations, if we're looking at infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, we do have some data from other countries that maybe wasn't as manipulated as it was in Canada. Um, you know, we had data from some European countries, for example, in Denmark. Uh, we had data, um, you know, from Scotland that was very interested. Even English data was was very very interesting, um, and what. And of course, there was Israeli data as well, which had been tampered with to some degree, but you could, you know, see trends there as well. And what we saw um, right up to, you know, a few months ago when uh, all this data was pulled uh, was that you had 85 to 90 percent of infections, hospitalizations and deaths were in the vaccinated. And what's more interesting is when you actually break down this data, what you start to see is that the more vaccines you had, the more likely you were to get infected, hospitalized, or die. And this trend was developing, especially with UK data. I posted many, many uh, graphs um, from uh, you know, the UK health services uh, that showed really um, since the end of last year, we saw that the triple vaccinated were getting sick, hospitalized, and dying more frequently than even the double vaccinated. Now we can we can set aside the unvaccinated, but if even if we look at just like the single or double vaccinated, the triple vaccinated were getting far sicker uh, and were ho being hospitalized and dying far more frequently than even the double vaccinated. And that was very interesting. And this trend has continued. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that was very interesting. When I analyzed a lot of this data, I realized that what's probably happening is that the the vaccines are suppressing the immune system and and really this immune suppression continues um, several months after the vaccine and once you get to the point of um, you know about six months after your vaccine or your booster, your immune system is in such a bad shape that you're getting infected, hospitalized, and dying at a far higher rate than anybody else. This, this fits exactly with Dr. Stephen Pellick at UBC and his lab Connexus, which is looking at the immune response yeah. of people who are not vaccinated or one, two, or three vaccines. And this is exactly what he's finding. The more and, vaccines and you have, the, the poorer your, that, your immune system is. It's That's destroying correct. your natural immune system. Exactly, it's it's damaging your it's damaging your own innate immune system. And what's interesting is once you get to the six month mark, um, in a lot of studies, and this first showed up in Denmark in December of 2021. Um, what you end up seeing is is um, something that is referred to as negative vaccine efficacy, and, and negative vaccine efficacy basically just means that you know, the vaccinated individual is getting infected, uh, sick, or dying at a higher rate than, than someone who's unvaccinated. That, the vaccine essentially is killing you. <laughs> not In only way, is yeah. it not effective, but it's actually 
Exactly. And so that that lasts for several months. However, when you when you study the, the hospitalization data closely from the UK, what you start to see is that um, at some point, the triple vaccinated, um, you know, the double vaccinated end up doing better than the triple vaccinated. Um, and the further out from your last vaccine you are, the better the double vaccinated do. Mm-hmm. And so what what this suggested to me is that if you stop the mRNA injections, yes, your immune system is going to take a hit for the first six to nine months. Uh, and it will take, in some people, it will take a really serious hit. But it seems like the immune system does start to recover. Um, and that, you know, by the time you get to 12 months after your last mRNA shot, you get partial recovery of your immune system. Now, it's never as good as the people who were unvaccinated, but you get partial recovery. And so what you end up seeing is that the double vaccinated end up doing pretty well if they stop their shots. And and they do far, far better than the triple or quadruple vaccinated. That, that's a very important message to have out in the public domain, because I think there's a huge level of hopelessness amongst the vaccinated. They've made a huge mistake yeah. and it, it's irreversible. So that that's a very that's very important for people to have that hope. Um, yeah. I'm curious to know, did you notice anything amongst the doctors who were dying, their vaccine status in terms of double versus triple versus quadruple. Was there yes. a correlation? There is. And so if you go through the 80 doctors who died suddenly or unexpectedly in the past two years, what you see is you see a very steady rate of deaths, a sort of a baseline rate of deaths. Uh, you know, you'll get a few every single month, right? And it's kind of very steady. Um, it's actually really interesting at how consistent it is. Um, But then you look at the months where there was a a booster rollout. So, for example, in November of 2021, we had the rollout of the first booster shot. And then you see a spike. Then you see a cluster of deaths uh, very, very shortly after the booster shot. Mm. And that cluster lasts about a month, about a month, month and a half. And then it goes back to that baseline that you know it was at before um and so when you look at uh july of 2022 was actually the deadliest month for you know sudden or unexpected deaths for doctors um and that was the rollout of the second booster shot Mm. um you know the second booster shot got rolled out i think in the second week of july of 2022 and then you see a sudden spike in, in in deaths and really doctors dropping left and right um, you know, and, and, and some of them were publicized in the media, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Paul Hannum, emergency doctor from Ontario, who was, uh, an Olympic, um, he was an Olympian. He participated in the Olympics. He was a triathlete, you know, he was going for a fun run at the age of 50 and dropped dead. They couldn't uh, save him. They couldn't resuscitate him. This happened in July. Dr. Candace Naiman, 27 years old, also a triathlete. Um, she's one of the residents from McMaster University who died that summer. She was actually participating in a triathlon and she collapsed in the swimming portion. Um, They did manage to save her and get her to the ICU, but she died four days later, right? And then there was another uh, doctor from Saskatchewan, 44 years old, who died in a public swimming pool at 1 p.m., 
Um, you know, it, it's it's just shocking. Right. So so you do see these clusters, uh, these spikes of death that occur very, very shortly after the booster shot. And then it kind of seems to, you know, go back to the sort of the background rate of deaths, which is still elevated compared to previous years. Uh, in, but unfortunately, it seems like after the second booster shot, this baseline now seems to be much higher. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, you know, like I said, usually you get, you know, two or two deaths a month, maybe three, um, you know, then we had that spike in July where we had 11 deaths, right? But now we've had, it's been a couple of months and I've got five deaths in, in September. So if the baseline, let's say used to be two, now I've got five, I don't know if it's going to continue. I mean, I'm going to continue maintaining, you know, this database and looking at this data, but, uh, I fear that the baseline rate of deaths is actually going to go up. The, mm -hmm. you know the background rate of deaths is going to go up and then you add on top of that you know the mrna shots when they come out you know now we've just had the omicron booster that's come out and i think it'll be available um you know very soon in every province i think in alberta it became available um you know maybe a, a week or two ago um but um and now you've got dr Teresa tam talking about that if you want to be up to date on your mrna shots you're going to have to take shots every three months and so but you know again i, I go back to my point if you stop the mrna shots your immune system can recover to some degree mm -hmm. and you need at least 12 months for that to, to start to see that recovery and you know i've seen dr peter mccullough a cardiologist from Texas, you know, he's talked about this, um, how long the spike protein can, you know, be detected in your, in your system, circulating in your system. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's up to 12 months, uh, maybe even up to 18 months in, in a few cases. So, you know, your body has an ability to heal itself, uh, especially when you're exposed to a toxin like the spike protein, but you have to give it time and you have to give it a chance. And, um, you know, so people need a break from the mRNA at least 12 months, I would say, uh, to, to start seeing an improvement uh, with their immune function. And we know this because they do way better than the triple or quadruple vaccinated, um, you know, with the data that's not being released in Canada, but is still being released, you know, in places like UK, Israel, and so on. Mm -hmm. um so you know there is a chance to to for your system to bounce back but you have to give it a chance you have to stop the mrna shots and uh let your body heal um and you know you can take things take some you know supplements to try to help that process along uh there's even supplements that can break down the spike protein for example natokinase has just been shown to have the ability to break down not just blood clots not just amyloid clots which might be happening in some of these vaccinated individuals. It's not just blood clots, but it seems to be amyloid fibrils that are being found in these clots. So that accounts for these kind of gray, rubbery, long rubbery clots that they're pulling out of uh, you know individuals who've died. It can break those down, but it's been shown to actually break down the spike protein itself. So there's things people can do to help themselves. So what would be, what, give me your hit list of the top five or six things that you feel that vaccinated uh, patients should be taking to reverse the adverse effects of the vaccine. 
Um, you know, I think the number one thing that's been shown uh, really to be a factor in the vast majority of severe COVID-19 cases and deaths was vitamin D deficiency. Um, this has been shown uh, in multiple studies. Now it's, it's being completely ignored by the media, but, but it's been shown in multiple peer-reviewed studies that you know approximately 85% of patients who died from COVID and, and had like serious COVID infection and died might have survived if their vitamin levels were high and 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 you know above a certain threshold mm -hmm. and 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 so uh i would say number one thing you can do uh really is is you could get your vitamin d levels checked or just take vitamin d supplements in fact uh there was information that had come out that uh anthony fauci uh, was actually in the United States, Dr. Fauci was taking high levels of vitamin D from the very first beginning of the pandemic. And in fact, I think he was taking uh, 6,000 international units a day. Um, it might've been as, as high as 8,000 uh, units a day. So he was taking it himself. And this was actually an, an email he had written to one of his physician colleagues who had asked them like, you know, how much vitamin supplement how much vitamin D supplementation are you taking per day? And I think he 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 replied and said six thousand units. So you think vitamin D? I I do understand it's very good in preventing the adverse effects of COVID. But you think for someone who's vaccine injured, Absolutely. it would also be on the top of your list. So what else besides vitamin D? Absolutely, and and really because the vitamin D uh, seems to uh, really um, affect the immune system in many ways, and 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 what. What is common with, with long COVID and vaccine injury is, uh, for many patients is really, it's an injury to your uh, immune system, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and so it, it's immune system injury. So what you wanna do is you wanna give your immune system sort of the best chance to, to you know, recover. Uh, and, and, and you need, uh, you know, you need, you need certain supplements to, to help your immune system do that. So I'd say vitamin D is number one on my list. Um, you know, people have talked about uh, vitamin C, of course, uh, as an antioxidant, uh, also, uh, you know, helps the immune system. Um, quercetin and zinc is, is something that's been brought up that uh, could interact uh, with the spike protein uh, and, and uh, maybe block it from doing damage. Uh, NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine, this is a peptide that's available as a supplement as well, also has been shown um to affect the spike protein people who let's say like to take herbs you've got things like uh dandelion um leaf um white pine needle um again this is something people you know may want to research on their own uh i'm not you know in i'm not in the business of sort of you know recommending um supplements or anything like that because again that's something that they smear you with they say oh you know these people who are raising concerns about the vaccines they just want to sell supplements i don't sell supplements. i don't sell anything no right you but know, actually or... what i do want to loop back to is yeah. your battle with alberta health tell me a little bit more you're an oncologist and a radiologist but you were involved in a very successful oncology clinic with stage four cancer patients who were doing very well under your care. And explain explain to the listeners what happened. Yes, um, I came to Edmonton, Alberta to work at the Cross Cancer Institute, um, which is you know a big cancer center here in Alberta. 
And the reason I came here was because they had state-of-the-art um, cancer diagnosis with PET-CT. Uh, so we had uh, PET-CT available, which is one of the, you know, the top technologies to diagnose the vast majority of cancers. And so I became the lead PET-CT um, radiologist for Alberta. I was reading over a thousand PET-CTs every year. So, uh, you know, I, I would diagnose uh, about a thousand cancer patients a year. And the PET-CT was something that the oncologists relied heavily on and the surgeons. I mean, the surgeons would prepare their surgery based on my reports, uh, telling them exactly where the cancer is located, uh, how it's spreading, where it's spreading, and so on. Um, and so we had cutting edge diagnostics, but we also had cutting edge uh, therapeutics, cancer treatments. And uh, the, the class of cancer treatments that I became involved in is called medical isotopes. Uh, sometimes it's called targeted radionuclide therapy, radio ligand therapy. And it's a brand new branch of cancer treatments that's highly successful and highly promising. And the reason it's it's successful, so successful and promising is because what we do is we take a radioactive atom uh, like lutetium, which is a beta emitter, beta particle emitter, um, and we attach it to a molecule that specifically targets a unique receptor that is located on a tumor cell, but it's not located on normal cells. So, and then we, we inject it into the patients, um, you know, and then it travels throughout the body. So it reaches all the cancer cells in the body. Um, and then it starts releasing, it attaches to the tumor cell and then starts releasing these beta particles. And these beta particles are very interesting. What they do is they, they, they destroy the DNA of the rapidly re replicating cancer cell, but they don't travel very far. So they're really limited to maybe a cell and, and an adjacent few cells. So what you end up is you, you end up eradicating the tumor with the radiation, but then the radiation dies and decays uh, within hours and it doesn't reach the normal tissues. Or if it reaches the normal tissue, it's very, very minimal and minor. Mm -hmm. So what you end up with is you end up with targeted uh, radiation therapy cancer treatment where you end up killing the tumor cells without affecting the normal um, cells of the patient. And this is what makes it completely different from chemotherapy. Any chemotherapy that's on the market is still damaging your bone marrow cells, um, you know, your, your, your blood cells, your blood counts. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't discriminate, whereas this exactly. is precision. Exactly. It's very, very precise. It's more precise than anything on the market today. Uh, for example, you can compare it to... Um, you know, if you compare it to external beam radiation therapy, which is being used regularly with an external beam, again, you have a, a beam that's being directed towards the tumor cell, but you have to go through normal tissue to get to the tumor. So you're damaging uh, healthy tissue. So with external beam radiation therapy, for example, for breast cancer, you know, with women who are who have their breast cancer tumor irradiated, you know, they end up with radiation burns on their skin. They end up with um, scarring in their lungs as a result of the treatment. You know, they end up with lymphedema. They end up with lung scarring. Um, whereas with this therapy, you, you end up with none of that. Um, it, so it's very precise, targeted cancer treatment therapy. It was developed in Europe. It's been used in Europe um, since 2010. 
Um, well, actually, it's, actually, it was used even earlier than that. Um, but what happened was that the FDA refused to approve it because it would cut into the profit that was being made by uh, pharmaceutical companies that are selling chemotherapy. And so the FDA has sat on these treatments for almost 20 years, and only a couple of years ago, they approved the very first one. Now, we were lucky because um, we had created a trial approved by Health Canada um, and got it approved. And so we were importing these cancer treatments from the Netherlands. And we started treating our cancer patients. I, I got this program up and running. And we managed to get about 200 patients recruited into the trial, and we had a response rate of 85%. So with end-stage cancer patients, and these were neuroendocrine cancer patients because we, we could target their, their tumor, we had a response rate of 85%. We were saving 85% of them, which meant that their tumor was rendered completely inactive so that the tumor couldn't replicate, or we managed to eradicate the tumor completely. And these were so, stage four cancer patients. These were stage four cancer patients who had failed every other treatment. So wow. they had failed every, they had failed surgeries, they had failed chemo, they had failed other drugs. Uh, and this was really their absolute last treatment option. And we were saving 85% of these patients. And so our program exploded. Uh, it was the largest uh, cancer treatment program of its kind in North America. And I've had, you know, Stanford University come to me and say, you know, we want you to replicate this program at Stanford. We want you to replicate this at John Hopkins, um, you know, at uh, NYU, Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, all these big cancer centers in the States wanted. Um, I even had them try to send me patients. And I said, look, I can't take patients from the U.S. or Australia because of Health Canada regulations. I can only treat Canadian patients. So I had patients who were referred to me from all over Canada. Mm -hmm. Now, we ran this program for two years. And then what happened was I didn't realize um, that this was going to happen. But the Alberta Health Services executives conspired to sabotage our program and destroy it and eliminate it completely so that Alberta cancer patients and really cancer patients throughout Canada would not have access to these treatments. And what they did was my director, the HS director of my department, spent six months going around the department asking my staff to see if anyone would file a complaint about me, really about anything. Uh, for one um, nurse, they offered her a promotion to AHS manager if she would file a complaint against me. Uh, you know, other staff, they, they offered promotions uh, as well. And, and so they spent six months doing this behind my back. Some of my staff warned me that this was happening. And so I had some idea. I just didn't know. I, I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe that they would do such a thing to try to destroy the cancer program that was so successful. And sure enough, they did it. They, 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 they had someone file a fraudulent complaint. And then they organized a, a really a, a security team. Uh, the first they offered me, they came to my office, you know, um, right after Christmas, I come back from a Christmas holidays, they come to my office, they'd spend all of Christmas preparing this. And they said, we're going to put you on unpaid uh, administrative leave because someone complained against you, but we're going to keep paying you your salary. And you know, there'll be an investigation. And I'm sure you can come back after and so on. So I said, Okay, fine. And I said, Okay, no problem. I'll go on the uh, sorry, paid administrative leave. Um, and so I said, fine. And I and I decided to leave my workplace. And what I didn't realize was there was a security team 
in the adjacent conference room where they were going to remove me by force if I refused. And I obtained this from legal documents afterwards where they had discussions, well, what if he refuses to leave? What are we going to do with him? Well, we're going to drag him out and we're going to cite occupational hazard. They were going to cite some nonsense to drag me out by force if I didn't leave willingly. So I left. And uh, what they did was they filed fraudulent complaints against me at AHS and the college. So the college participated in this. And um, they dragged me out through, you know, these complaint investigations for 10 months. And during that 10 months, I, I had lawyers from my medical malpractice who were saying, you know, this is nonsense. This is uh, made up. Um, Dr. Mackis's patients need him. His patients, he, you know, they don't have any other doctor. I was the main doctor in that program. There was another doctor close to retirement who was seeing maybe 10% of the patients, but he couldn't handle the entire workload. And he was, you know, in his 60s and, you know, halfway retired. And so, you know, I said, my patients need me. You need to wrap this up, dismiss this complaint and bring me back. And the HS lawyers kept saying, no, no, we can't, we won't. And what they did was they kept paying me my salary. So they paid me $60,000 every month. And they said, if you try to go back to the Cross Cancer Institute and try to treat your patients, we're going to have you removed by security. We're going to go after your hospital privileges. We're going to suspend your hospital privileges. And we're going to go after your medical license. And so um, then I realized that the reason why they kept stalling and dragging everything out was one of my AHS contracts was going to end in 10 months after they removed me. So they were going to pay me out to the end of my contract, and then they were just going to kick me out. And uh, they were going to release me and my license and let me go at that point. Um, but first, they had to run out my contract. Uh, then I receive a letter from AHS saying, we're not, we're not renewing your contract because we don't need you. And now I had patients who started dying because they were being denied cancer treatments. And they said, we don't need you. Uh, we're not renewing your contract. So this was happening for, for 10 months. And, and when I realized that they were going to destroy my cancer program and let my cancer patients die, um, I filed a lawsuit against Alberta Health Services and for breach of contract and really malfeasance in public office. And, um, you know, very shortly after that, um, they, they released my license initially because they thought I was going to move on. And then the moment I filed the lawsuit, a few months later, they came after my medical license again. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, once my lawsuit was going, um, first they try to pay me off. They try to bribe me. So about six months after my lawsuit was filed, um, they came to me and they said, they came to me with a settlement offer and they said, look, um, we need you to stay silent about this. Uh, uh, I was still communicating with some of my uh, physician colleagues and to see what was going on, what's going on with my patients, what's going on, you know, with my radiology practice. Uh, and of course, my colleagues were telling me it's chaos down here. Uh, you know, um, many of us are trying to pick up the slack. Uh, we're trying to cover your radiology, your PET-CT readings, uh, but we're struggling with that. Um, and with my patients as well, you know, they were trying to find a student who might cover, you know, the, the, the program temporarily. Uh, and of course, the doctor who was near retirement was struggling, trying to see everybody um, and trying to keep, you know, the program afloat for a while. 
Um, but you know, HS just didn't give a damn. And so, um, so they wanted to bribe me and get rid of me uh, so that this would all go away. And they came to me and they said, uh, they gave me a, an offer in writing. This uh, offer, this settlement offer is in the public domain. It's available in the Edmonton courthouse uh, under docket QB 1603-18935. This is a legal document that's in the public domain. They offered me $400,000 in exchange for my silence. They said, you know, that basically I had to sign non-disclosure agreements. I had to give up the rights to all of my Alberta Health Services contracts. And I had to promise I would never speak to my colleagues, my physician colleagues or nursing colleagues uh, in my cancer program again. And the implication was that basically I had to leave Alberta. And I was given one week to sign this, to sign this settlement offer of $400,000. And they even said, look, we'll even sweeten the deal. We'll make it, we'll, we'll find a way to make it tax-free. So it'll be like, I'm getting double, right? And uh, their reasoning was that they were basically paying me like an extra bonus, you know, for those 10 months that I was dragged out of my office illegally and prevented from treating my patients. So it, it was kind of like they were going to double my salary and pay me yeah. off in exchange for my silence. And I said, no. And that seemed to have shocked the executives at Alberta Health Services. Uh, certainly the Lawyers Act really shocked uh, they thought that for sure I would take the deal and move on with my life. And, 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 you know, that's what I was being pressured to do. Um, I realized that them giving me one week to sign it was a pressure tactic. Normally they're supposed to give you, I think, uh, according to the Alberta rules of court, you're supposed to get at least a month or two when there's any kind of settlement offer. Uh, so they were violating the, the rules, uh, the Alberta rules of court already. Um, and I refused. I said, no. And uh, really very shortly thereafter, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta created another complaint against me. And um, it came out of the blue. And apparently the complaint was made by someone who worked in our cancer program as, as, a, as a clerk, as, as a secretary, but she had a relationship uh, with one of the AHS executives who was a defendant in my lawsuit. Uh, they had an intimate relationship. He would actually take her to conferences. They would stay at those conferences together. He would wine and dine her. And he would really use cancer research money to pay for trips, to take her on trips all over the world uh, to go on medical conferences with him. So I actually, I was at one of these conferences and I saw them there and I, you know, and I just said hi and, and, and that's it. And what happened was she had called, she had apparently called the college and said that I threatened her at this conference, that I had like threatened her with something, I don't know, physical harm or whatever. And so the college, Dr. Michael Cafaro, who we talked about earlier, what he did was he opened a college complaint against me himself. He said the college is opening. Now she didn't put anything in writing. She apparently just made a phone call directly to Michael Cafaro. And, I, and I, I obtained legal documents afterwards, and apparently they were chatting on first name basis. She said, hey, Mike, this and this, what's happening? And, you know, this is like one of the heads of the college. So I don't know how they knew each other from beforehand. But that's what I say is, is that the relationships between AHS executives and the college and so on, they all know each other. They're all friends. They all cover for each other. Um, so Dr. Michael Cafaro opened a college complaint against me dragged me for, through a completely fraudulent uh, college hearing tribunal 
uh, they had actually, the college had actually done an investigation and the investigator said, there's no evidence of these allegations. Um, we just basically have to take her word on it and that's it. There's no evidence. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had contacted the organizers of the conference and I said, look, put out a statement that, you know, you know, that, um, you know, there was, there was no, like no one complained about me at the conference that, you know, I mean, there's security at these conferences, you know, you can't just do, you know, you can't threaten people or, or do what you want. There's security, there's people everywhere, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's thousands so, of people that- So what was, the, what was the agenda? Why were they trying to shut down your clinic in Alberta with as the oncology clinic? Yeah. What was the motive? The motive was because, and I only found this out later on, uh, some of it through legal documents and some of it through discussions I had with healthcare executives in British Columbia who actually knew exactly what was going on. Um, I had many chats with the former president of the BC Cancer Agency who was kind of involved in this situation himself. Um, the reason they wanted to shut down the program in Alberta was because they wanted to rebuild the same program in British Columbia and Vancouver uh, in partnership with the UBC and BC Cancer and uh, Triumph, which is uh, actually a physics laboratory that produces medical isotopes for uh, healthcare. Um, and the Trudeau Liberal government was going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into this program to create cancer clinics uh, that were going to be the global leader in, in medical isotopes that would effectively start providing cancer treatments to Canadians through the public system, but would also have a private system of private clinics where foreign nationals from other countries like China and India, um, Japan, and so on, could fly into Vancouver, get their cancer treatments for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then go back because you don't need to be hospitalized with these cancer treatments, you can do it as an outpatient. So imagine that you've got outpatient clinics, you can now start charging um, foreign nationals hundreds of thousands of dollars per treatment. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars in- In, um, in, in revenue. In and revenue. and but your in clinic profit. wasn't making enough money then. In profit, exactly. So my program wasn't making any money uh, for anybody in Alberta. Um, and I tell, you know, anyone who asks the cancer treatments that we were giving cost, you know, five, $10,000. We imported them directly from the Netherlands where these medical isotopes were produced. Uh, you know, we have them shipped by FedEx like the same day because the isotopes decay uh, very quickly. So what you have to do is you obtain them as they're produced from the Netherlands, they fly them in and we use them, you know, immediately as soon as they come off the, the airplane you know, they're, they're driven immediately to the Cross Cancer Institute and we're, you know, we inject them to the patient uh, immediately before the radiation itself dies off because the radiation dies off very quickly. Uh, and Health Canada was paying for that. So really all that Alberta Health Services was paying for these cancer treatments was my salary as a radiologist and my time, which half my time was spent in the, in the cancer treatment clinics and really the nursing and the technologists that they lent to the cancer treatment program from the radiology department. And this is what the Alberta Health Services executives complained about. They said, you know, oh, you're costing us money. You know, all, all of this is coming from the radiology budget. And, uh, you know, we're not making any money on this. You know, I was told, and of course it's the public system. So you can't make money on this. I can't be charging patients cancer patients, you know, for their treatments. 
like I said, Health, Health Canada covered the cost of the cancer treatment and no one was making any money and HS executives were complaining. So I suspect what happened was the Alberta Health Services executives who were appointed by Rachel Notley's government and Rachel Notley had a very close relationship with the Trudeau Liberal government. They had conspired um, with individuals uh, in healthcare in BC and, and with the Trudeau Liberal government to quietly shut down our cancer program in Alberta and basically leave our cancer patients to die. I mean, our cancer patients were left to die a certain death without these treatments. Um, and because it was so controversial and so illegal, they had to do it quietly and they had to basically smear me and destroy my career and my reputation and really remove me so that I was unable to treat my patients so that they could then quietly rebuild that cancer program in BC, have a monopoly because they needed a monopoly on these cancer treatments in order to call themselves a global leader. Because imagine if someone in China says, wait a minute, instead of paying half a million dollars to get my cancer treated in Vancouver, BC, in one of these fancy clinics funded by the Trudeau liberal government, why don't I just go to Macus in Alberta and get it treated for 10K or 5K or maybe for free? Right? Maybe I'll get somehow into the clinical trial and get it treated for free. You can't have that option available, right? And so there was a conspiracy between our provincial government and our healthcare leadership to shut down a successful cancer treatment program and leave hundreds of Alberta cancer patients to die so that they could build their state-of-the-art cancer clinics in, um, in BC. And people can look this up. The Trudeau government, uh, actually, uh, Justin Trudeau came personally to hand deliver the first check of these hundreds of millions of dollars. He brought a $10 million check with him in November 2018, and he did a photo op with leaders of UBC, BC Cancer, um, and Triumph, and there were several mayors that were present as well. And this was a photo op that he did, and he personally hand delivered a $10 million check to jumpstart this program that they had just successfully shut down in Alberta. Uh, there was an anonymous donation of $18 million that was given to BC Cancer at the same time so that they could accelerate uh, starting this, this program. It was the largest anonymous donation in BC Cancer history, $18 million from an anonymous donor. People can look this up. This is in the public domain. This was in the news. They, they were proud of this. They were bragging about this. And then shortly after, the Trudeau government allocated $300 million for this particular program. Now, you see, if the feds are investing $300 million of, of, of federal funds into this um, you know, state-of-the-art cancer treatment in BC, that's a lot of money. You can imagine what the potential, the profit potential for them is if they have a parallel private system going with this as well. I was told by the former president of BC Cancer, with whom I had many discussions about this, and he was actually trying to get a lot of politicians on board. I was told that UBC, the University of British Columbia, had invested several million dollars of their own money to get this jump started. BC Cancer had invested millions of dollars, I think $5 million. Um, and there were numerous former healthcare executives in British Columbia who were personally invested in this. There were politicians who put, who put up their own money to get this going. And so they all want, want in on this new technology. They're calling it precision medicine. 
Uh, in fact, the My Cancer program that they destroyed, that they wanted to rebuild in BC, the private clinics, they wanted to call it the BC Center for Precision Medicine. Um, I don't know if this name has been used yet or not. Right now, they're building gigantic buildings and complexes. One of them is called the Institute for Advanced Molecular Imaging, uh, IAMI. Again, this is something people can look up. This is a huge complex. Uh, they actually bought a state-of-the-art cyclotron to produce the radioactive medical isotopes that are going to be used in this. And the um, Institute for Advanced Molecular Imaging is being funded mainly by the Trudeau government. So it's the Trudeau liberals that are heavily invested in pharmaceuticals in this. And of course, now we find out, you know, when it comes to mRNA vaccine, that the Trudeau government, you know, just made a deal to build a Moderna factory to produce mRNA vaccines in, in, in Quebec, in Montreal. Um, you know, now they're talking about building another mRNA factory in Vancouver and BC. So really, when, when we see, you know, Justin Trudeau come out and say, okay, everyone has to get their mRNA shots and everyone has to get, you know, be up to date on their mRNA shots, or we're going to shut the country down again. I mean, he said this very recently, that everyone has to get vaccinated for COVID-19 and the flu or he's going to shut down the country again. I think people have to realize that um, the Trudeau liberals are heavily financially invested in pharmaceuticals. Most of it is in British Columbia. Some of it may be in Montreal because, you know, Trudeau has a, a, a writing in Quebec. But uh, they're heavily invested in pharmaceuticals in BC. And the most profitable pharmaceuticals until the pandemic hit was going to be cancer treatment, precision cancer treatment, including molecular um, isotopes, uh, uh, medical isotopes like I was using. But now, of course, they're all going all in on mRNA vaccines and trying to invest themselves into the production of mRNA vaccines. So there's your motive right there. And you know you can trace the money uh, very clearly. You can even trace, I mean, the individual who's pictured um, in BC receiving the $10 million check from Justin Trudeau directly. This is a nuclear medicine doctor like myself. This is my counterpart at BC Cancer. He's the vice president of, of research at, at BC Cancer. What is his um, name? Uh, you know, his... His name escapes me right now. It's it's uh, sorry, I was just on a long train of thought, but um, you know I'll I'll try to look it up and find it for you. He's the vice president of research at BC Cancer, uh, nuclear medicine physician. Uh, I I can't think of his name right now, but um, and what is, whatever happened to the Dutch company that you were working with? Is the Canadian government going to cut them out of the deal? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But what the, is the name? What is the name of the Dutch company that you were working with? You know, honestly, it's um, I don't recall their name right now either, but um, they were, you know, they were producing not just for us. They were producing uh, for the rest of Europe as well. And what happened was um, uh, one of the complexes that they're building in Vancouver, B.C., this Institute for Advanced Molecular Imaging. It's this, you know, 30 plus million dollar building that's on a you know big city block. Uh, and they bought a state of the art uh, cyclotron, which is another machine that costs, you know, 30 million dollars. 
um, and of course to staff it and everything, you're looking at over $100 million just for this one building alone, is they want to produce these medical isotopes on site. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be importing it from, uh, you know, Europe or relying on Europe. Really, you know, the money is in producing uh, these cancer treatments on site um, so that um, you can basically just walk, you know, across the street you know, you produce the radioactivity, um, the radioactive material that morning, you do the quality control on it, you know, that takes a, an hour or two. And then you walk it across the street to your fancy new cancer clinics, and you charge patients, you know, two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars per treatment. And, you know, it might cost you, a, a, you know, five hundred or a thousand dollars to produce. And, you know, you're charging uh, patients half a million dollars. I mean, this is you know, we're talking obscene amounts of money involved. And really, when they came after, you know, nobody cared about my cancer program. When I was treating uh, cancer patients with a rare cancer, neuroendocrine cancer is quite rare. Uh, neuro neuroendocrine cancers, uh, they can arise in the pancreas. So, uh, for example, like Steve Jobs died of a neuroendocrine cancer of the pancreas. They can arise in the small bowel, large bowel but this is a rare cancer, you know, you know, out of cancers, we're talking a few patients out of 100,000 cancer patients, uh, quite rare. So no one can make any money off it, right? I mean, that's why I had only several hundred cancer patients as, as opposed to thousands of cancer patients, because I was treating a, a particularly rare tumor type. However, just before they shut down my program, there was a major discovery made um, that you could use this same technology to treat prostate cancer patients and breast cancer patients. And the receptor to deliver this radiation to prostate cancer had just been developed. So that's when they realized the money-making potential of this. And that's really when the, the wheels went into motion to say, wait a minute, Macus's few hundred neuroendocrine cancer patients can die. We don't care. Let those patients die we have hundreds of thousands of prostate cancer patients that we can treat at 100,000 plus um, per treatment. And of course, you have to get several treatments. So we're looking at at least half a million dollars, you know, for a person to get their entire treatment. We're talking profit margins in the billions of dollars, right? And so and are they, or do you think the plan is to offer this to Canadians or is it really they're trying to run a, a Mayo Clinic, uh, you know, model where you import your patients. Uh, I think I think what they're going to do is they're going to do both to stay under the radar. Um, so in terms of the health regulations, you, you know, you cannot run fully private clinics um, like this, like cancer clinics. And and actually, I was asking the president of the BC Cancer how they were going to get around the legal aspects of this. And he said, oh, don't worry, we're going to, uh, we're going to cycle the, we're going to cycle the money through multiple uh, companies in Germany and so on. And, you know, by the time it gets back to them, it's basically money laundering. Uh, it was the, the money was going to be laundered through several entities so that, you know, it, 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 it would completely bypass any kind of law that might be there to protect, um, you know, um, uh, patients from having to pay, but they were going to offer this to uh, uh, initially to, to cancer patients in BC and maybe make it available, you know, to a limited number of patients in the rest of the country. But the problem is, is that um, they don't have this up and running and it's going to take many years to get this up and running. And in the meantime, they've left my cancer patients to die. 
Uh, they've left many other cancer patients throughout Canada to die who might have had access to my program. Now, we were, Health Canada had limited our clinical trial to 400 patients, but I was informed that we could have easily expanded that to several thousand uh, patients as our, our program grew, and they killed our program before we could get that expansion going. And, it's and, and absolutely, you hear this and you just, it's so criminal at such a yeah. high level. And, and I'll give you, I'll give you another, I'll give you one more example. Uh, the company that developed the peptide to treat prostate cancer. Um, so um, this is, is um, um, this is called um, PRRT. Um, and again, people can can look it up. But the company that had developed it, I think the company was worth something like $16 million. And what happened was as soon as this discovery was made uh, that this could treat prostate cancer, cancer, the company was bought out by Novartis, which is a huge pharmaceutical company. Novartis bought them out for $2 billion upfront, no questions asked. And of course, Novartis has deep relationships in Canada with healthcare executives um, in Canada, in British Columbia, and with the Trudeau government. So they bought this out. They bought the rights to the, to produce uh, this pharmaceutical. Of course, you know those rights will be lent to the BC Cancer and um, you know UBC to produce the the pharmaceutical. You know, with uh, obviously they're going to give a cut to Novartis. Um, but, you know, th th this involves the a big, big pharmaceutical giant like Novartis is finally interested in this. So, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the past, there was no money in this and uh, the FDA suppressed it for 20 years uh, and wouldn't approve uh, any of these uh, treatments uh, because it, it would cut into the profit of, of uh, drug companies who are focused more on chemotherapy that was in most cases, damaging people's uh, healthy tissues and healthy cells. Um, and, you know, sometimes you've got these chemotherapy regimens that only have a 10%, 20%, you know, 25% response rate. And here we're sitting with 85 response rate. We can't get FDA approval. Um, our patients are treated as outpatients. Now, chemotherapy patients go through a very, very rigorous treatment. You know, they have to be uh, you know, they have to go to these cancer centers, uh, you know, they often have to be monitored for their blood work, they lose their hair, uh, they often have to be hospitalized because, you know, they'll get infections when their blood counts are down, their bone marrow is suppressed. And here we are giving treatments where a patient can walk into an outpatient clinic, get their cancer treatments and walk out, go about their day like nothing happened, right? Like none of these, none of my patients had to be hospitalized. Um, our oh. blood counts almost never went down, right? And so finally, the pharmaceutical giants decided, okay, now it's time for us to make obscene amounts of money on these cancer treatments. Oh, look, there's Trudeau government going around shutting down Macus's cancer program in Alberta. You know, Trudeau is obviously using public funds to build all of these facilities in Vancouver, which are going to be producing, you know, pharmaceutical uh, and radioactive products for their private clinics as well. That's all funded publicly by public funds. And this is what they do is they build infrastructure with public funds that then they plan to use for private clinics, right? And so here's Trudeau running around the country, handing out checks, you know, committing $300 million to this project. And who cares if a, if a few hundred cancer patients die in Alberta? We have a friend in Rachel Notley, 
you know, uh, who's who's going to make a phone call to the Alberta Health Services executives, Dr. Verna Yu and Dr. Francois Belanger. They're going to have Macus dragged out uh, with a team of a security team. We're going to have lawyers, teams of lawyers. You know, uh, lawyers, I've had, Alberta Health Services has spent more than $5 million in legal fees trying to get me kicked out of the province, trying to make sure I can't pra practice medicine in Alberta. $5 million. Like this is not even counting the patients who've died, the patients who've suffered, um, all the PET CT scans that went unread. Uh, now we have a record backlog of, of reading CT scans, MRI scans, because you have three radiologists trying to you know, take on my, my PET CT workload because I was reading the most PET CTs in the province. And so it's just it's, a very, it's very outrageous. And the families, you said that a good number of your patients have died. I'd say almost all of them. And now their families must be outraged. They were well, thriving families... under your care and all of a sudden the treatment is withdrawn. Yeah. And, and, and basically, basically what happened was they were told, well, the treatment's no longer available. Uh, you're going to be uh, given another oncologist. Um, so there were other oncologists who, you know, were in the program, but all they could offer was chemotherapy that had a success rate of 10%, 15%. You know, they were basically left to die. And on top of that, not, not only were they left to die, but they were basically offered a chemotherapy regimen that neuroendocrine tumors don't even respond to. So they were probably given a horrific uh, chemotherapy regimen. Uh, they probably had a very, very poor quality of life at the end of their life, and they were left to die. And unfortunately, the Alberta Health Services executives have never admitted to anybody what they've done. Uh, in fact, um, when I submitted documents to the Edmonton police and to the RCMP, what they did was when they filed a fraudulent court application to have me declared a vexatious litigant and have my lawsuits thrown out, um, they actually asked the court to order the Edmonton police and RCMP to delete all documents relating to my case because uh, some of those documents uh, were under legal privilege because they were obtained uh, through discovery um, process in the lawsuit. So if a document is obtained during discovery, apparently I cannot give it to the Edmonton police and I cannot give it to the RCMP, even if those documents show that my patients were effectively murdered by AHS executives. And so they had, they had the guts to order their lawyers to pursue me in court, file a fraudulent um, court application to have me declared a vexatious litigant in order to have my lawsuits thrown out and have the court order the Edmonton police and RCMP to destroy the documents. And I think what happened was the judge said that my lawsuits absolutely have to proceed. My lawsuits are legitimate. However, in the case of like the, the documents, um, you know, that, that, that like, you know, because of like legal issues that maybe the Edmonton police and RCMP should go ahead and delete, delete those records. And that's how they... It sounds they, to me like a class action suit should be started on behalf of these families against yeah. Alberta Health Services. Yeah. You know, you've got you've got hundreds of families who have lost a family member unnecessarily. But the problem is that they've been covering it up and and like I said the millions of dollars that Alberta Health Services has spent on lawyers trying to cover this up 
um, they have teams of lawyers. Like I've shown up in court. Now I'm self-represented because I've spent $250,000 of my own money on lawyers. Mm -hmm. And um, at some point I just ran out of money. I said, okay, I can't continue funding, you know, top lawyers in Alberta at four or $500 an hour. Uh, like I'm going to go bankrupt, right? So at some point I had to let my lawyers go and I became a self-represented litigant. So, you know, you have these situations where I show up in court by myself, you know, with my little, uh, you know, laptop bag of, of legal documents. And I look beside me and I see a team of five, six, seven, eight corporate lawyers in suits, dressed head to toe with, you know, thousands and thousands of, of, of documents. And they're there, you know, they're threatening the judge. They're harassing the judge. I mean, these are nasty, nasty individuals. And, you know, this, these huge corporate teams that are paid by Alberta taxpayers. This is all paid by Alberta taxpayers, right? This is money that is being stolen from patient care that is being redirected to AHS Legal, which is run by AHS executives. And AHS Legal hires the top lawyers in Alberta, the most expensive lawyers. And what they do is really they go to court and they try to exploit every legal loophole possible to harass and um, really attack and damage someone like me, right? And that's what they've been doing in court for the past four years. So instead of my lawsuits continuing to proceed to trial, what they've done instead, at some point they said, okay, we're not going to allow you to question under oath AHS executives. And instead we're going to now start filing complaint after complaint in the court uh, court applications to either silence you on Twitter. So I had four applications filed against me to, to silence me on Twitter so that I could never speak about AHS or the college. And in fact, during these applications, the AHS lawyers asked the court to suspend my charter rights to freedom of expression. And the judge was just looking at them and he's like, he's like, are you guys serious? Like, he's like, yes, you know, there's such and such precedent from 1955 that, you know, we can suspend Marcus's uh, rights to freedom of expression, you know, based on this case and that case. And he shouldn't be allowed to talk about our corruption and corruption about Alberta Health Services and the college publicly on Twitter. And the judge said, okay, um, then why are you not filing a defamation lawsuit against Dr. Marcus if you claim that Dr. Marcus is defaming you publicly on Twitter and other social media? And they just stood there in silence. <laughs> so the judge basically laughed and said, okay, I'm going to review everything that you've submitted. And of course, they submitted thousands and thousands of pages. The AHS legal briefs were huge and, you know, they have to charge you know, Alberta taxpayers for their time and, and services. And in the end, the judge threw everything out and said, oh. no, you cannot, you know, uh, suspend Dr. Mackis's charter rights to freedom of expression. You didn't make your case. And really, the judge didn't even want to go into the legalities of the charter rights to freedom of expression itself. He just said, look, you didn't make your case at all. Uh, I'm dismissing all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are the kinds of of court actions that I've been attacked with over and over and over. They filed 13 such court actions against me. They've tried to have me declared in contempt of court. You know, they've tried to have me silenced repeatedly and they've tried to get the lawsuits thrown out repeat repeatedly as well. And when they failed to do it the first time, now they're trying to use uh, legal loopholes in the Alberta rules of court 
and they're trying to do a, a kind of a roundabout way to get my lawsuits thrown out. And so they're harassing judges nonstop to get court dates and to try to get my lawsuits thrown out. Uh, the most, <laughs> it's outrageous. It is outrageous. And this is Canada. This is Alberta. I hope that you're able to sit down with Danielle Smith and suggest to her that she gets busy in Alberta and starts another clinic with you in providing this service to Canadians at the most affordable price. Yeah, um, honestly. I, I really I, hope that your future is bright. With Daniel Smith, I think there is hope. I, I honestly, I wanted to mention something about the Jason Kenney government. Um, you know, I was supportive of Jason Kenney and I gave him a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, kind of room to, to maneuver and, I was in, in in fairly regular contact with the Ministry of Health under Jason Kenney's government. Now they said, look, this has to be on the down low. We, we, we can't let people know that, you know, we're in contact with you. We know about your lawsuits. We know about your legal cases. We know about the court fraud that AHS is committing in court. You know, we know all of this, right? And so I said, okay, well, when are you guys going to do something about it? Yeah. Right? And they said, well, oh, the pandemic just hit, oh, the optics are really bad. Uh, so we can't make any changes at AHS because, you know, it would look, the optics would be really bad. Uh, you know, we can't start changing management at Alberta Health Services. And I quickly realized that Jason Kenney's government had completely capitulated when it came to corruption in healthcare in Alberta. Um, and this didn't seem to be the case in the beginning. In the beginning, it seemed like they really wanted to take on the corruption. And, and really the evidence of that I had was that the health minister, Tyler Shandro, had canceled unilaterally the $5.4 billion contract, doctor's contract with Alberta Health Services that was paying doctors salaries. Mm -hmm. And what essentially happened was the doctors would just continue to bill the government a month to month, the same that they had been billing previously, but there was no longer this master agreement between doctors, Alberta Health Services, and the provincial government. And when the health minister canceled this contract, he didn't say it was because there was so much fraud that was being committed by Alberta Health Services executives uh, using, you know, dipping their hands into the money, into this money that was intended for patient care, but really, it, it seemed like they were really getting ready to tackle corruption at Alberta Health Services. Um, what the health minister then did, he did a review of uh, Alberta Health Services management. And this was done by Ernst & Young. And they published a report showing that Alberta Health Services has 3,200 managers that they employ. Out of those 3,200 managers, 1,000 are completely unnecessary. They're completely useless. They literally have almost nobody reporting to them. So these are just uh, positions that, you know, uh, friends of HS executives or family members had given to each other. Um, and then another 1,000 positions were, you know, such that you could probably eliminate them with no change to healthcare at all. And so out of 3,200 Alberta Health Services managers, 2,000 of them were completely unnecessary. And then the health minister, Tyler Chandra, had said, oh, that's great. We're going to now implement, you know, serious changes in the management and mismanagement of Alberta Health Services. You know, you have managers who make anywhere from $200,000 to $700,000 a year. 
you have 2000 of these managers who are completely unnecessary. Now you can do the math on this, uh, how much money that costs Alberta taxpayers every year. Um, and so Tyler Shandro, the health minister had come out and said, okay, we're going to do something about this. We're going to implement the recommendations of this uh, review. And we're going to start by firing 100 AHS managers and we'll go from there. Then the pandemic hit and you never heard about this again. So Jason Kenney's government had completely failed Albertans when it came to healthcare corruption. However, they knew exactly what was going on. In fact, they knew that the college had held my license hostage. They knew that the college had dragged me through a fraudulent tribunal where they ran up the costs of that tribunal to $70,000, where college employees were testifying against me. College employees who, who never knew me, had never met me, were testifying against me for two days. And then they took that $70,000 penalty and they extorted and threatened my family, my children, and said, we're going to punish your family financially. If you don't give up your lawsuits uh, with AHS, we're going to destroy your medical license. We'll make sure you never practice uh, anywhere uh, again, not just Alberta, but really internationally. We'll make sure you're never able to practice medicine again unless you give up your lawsuits. And when I refused uh, this extortion, what they did was they filed the penalty against me. They, they concluded that, they, that I'm guilty of some unprofessional conduct that they made up. And they said that I had to um, submit myself to psychiatric testing to see if I'm even fit to practice medicine. Otherwise, within 40 days um, with their doctor, otherwise that they would suspend my medical license permanently. And what happened was uh, shortly thereafter, the court had stepped in and the court said, OK, we're we're freezing um, everything that's happening with with my case, except the lawsuits. Uh, so the college couldn't suspend my license on those grounds. Uh, so what they did was they actually violated the court order, uh, which said that everything has to be frozen in my case. And what they did was they said, well, you didn't pay the 70,000 family that we, $70,000 penalty that we threatened or extorted your family with. Uh, and because you didn't pay that $70,000 extortion fee, we're suspending your license for non-payment. So now when you go on the college website, it says that I'm inactive and that my license was canceled for non-payment, non-payment of the $70,000 extortion fee that they threatened my children and my family with. Now, I will tell you, Tyler Shandrill, Alberta's health minister, knows this. He is 100% aware of this because I sent him the legal documentation. I sent him the letter. He acknowledged it. And that's it. He, you know, like they didn't do anything about it, but they're aware of this. Jason Kenney actually followed me on Twitter before he was um, elected Alberta premier. Uh, just shortly before uh, May 2019, he was following me on Twitter and he was following my posts about Alberta corruption and what was happening at the college. I had documented all of this online on Twitter. So Jason Kenney knew exactly what was happening to me at AHS and the college. They both refused to do anything about it. And so, you know, people, I think Albertans are angry enough at Jason Kenney. Uh, that's why they booted him. I think you know, the, the fact that he got himself, uh, you know, 51% support, which was probably heavily massaged to get it to that point, uh, even. And I think the fact that he, he 
finally decided to resign because Albertans were fed up and had enough of, of his basically letting the corrupt healthcare executives run rampant with no control um, and, and no, you know, no attempt by the government to rein them in. And so Jason Kenney, in my view, was a complete failure uh, as a politician, as a leader, uh, really as an individual. And they knew exactly what had happened to me, my cancer program. And so Danielle Smith, I think, is aware of, of some of the issues that have been happening. And really, you know, for her to say that the college deserves to be dissolved and that the AHS leadership deserves to be fired, mm -hmm. you know, I think she's aware of a lot of corruption that is going on. And I think it's great. And she's going to be attacked for this. Any attempt that she makes to clean up corruption in Alberta, you're going to see she's going to be crucified in the media for it. Uh, the media is completely in bed with healthcare executives in Alberta. Uh, the media has actually protected um, the AHS leadership from being exposed for corruption. Uh, they always uh, back up, uh, let's say, what Dr. Verna Yu was doing, and they always made sure that they covered up any corruption or scandals that were about to leak from AHS. I was actually in touch with several uh, prominent journalists Two investigative journalists from CBC, Charles Russell and Jenny Russell. Actually, I gave them documents, court documents. I gave them my statements of claim. I gave them a number of affidavits. And they looked at it and they said, oh, we're, we, we, we're not going to run your story. We can't. Don't send us any more. Don't send us they any won't more. touch it. But, Don't send us any more court you're, you're dealing with high-level criminals. I mean, the lawyer, Craig Boyer whose family has run the show for 40, 50 years. Yeah. And then you've got Dr. Michael Kafaro. I mean, these are, these are criminals, high level criminals yeah. who are not going to be toppled easily. No, not so easily. Daniel Smith sure. has a work cut out for her because Absolutely. this is very, very high level crime. I would call it, it is, it's, it's mafia style. I call it, um, they're organized, so it's it's a form of organized crime, but it's white collar crime. So what, what they yeah. do, it's white collar organized crime. And what they do is really they exploit the loopholes in the legal system, in the laws. So for example, the Health Professions Act, which governs the practice of medicine in Alberta, has far too many loopholes that these college lawyers exploit to abuse doctors, to harass doctors, to destroy their careers. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you have an Alberta doctor who committed suicide because of the pressure that college lawyers put on him, his medical license, his medical career, and his family, I mean, we're dealing with some very serious crimes. This is not just like, well, you know, you can slap them with a civil penalty yeah. or you can, you know, sue them for a few million dollars. These are these are these are crimes. This is um, this is not just civil crimes. It's, these are actual this, is crim this is criminal and crimes. these people belong behind bars. So they I belong just, in jail. Absolutely. I, absolutely. And I hope that Danielle Smith is swift and very exact and precise in her uh collapsing this existing system because I think, she needs to, I think she needs to act fast because these people have allies who are billionaires i mean they have allies in the pharmaceutical industry the pharmaceutical industry is a multi multi-billion dollar juggernaut uh, they have allies in the construction industry like i said i was shocked when i was blocked by pcl construction on twitter that had just received several multi-billion dollar 
contracts from Alberta Health Services and Rachel Notley's NDP government that had just you know gotten into power. Uh, so these people have very powerful allies. And of course, the media, the media is completely, I mean, safe for a few independent media outlets. Uh, you know, so when it comes to my my report on doctors dying suddenly and unexpectedly, I have to give credit to a number of, of independent media outlets. Uh, there's Odessa Orlowitz at Liberty.com. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Rebel News. Uh, Tamara, who's the reporter for Rebel News, actually ran a story about this. Uh, the Western uh, Standard News, uh, Matthew Harwood, uh, who's a journalist there. So these journalists have, these independent media journalists have really had the courage to come out and actually go against the narrative of the healthcare executives and healthcare establishment in Alberta. Because certainly, if you look at Alberta Health Services or the, or the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, have been silent even on the doctor deaths. They don't care. You know, I mean, you could have hundreds, you could have thousands of doctors die. They wouldn't care. They absolutely, they don't care about anybody. All they care about is money and power and their political connections and how they can continue to exercise their power. So, you know, I mean, I have a lot of advice and knowledge that I can give to Danielle Smith and share with Danielle Smith. Uh, I will definitely be in touch with, with some of the individuals who are close to Danielle Smith. Um, my intention also is to give the full database on the Canadian doctor deaths uh, to Danielle Smith and, and her people you know, to evaluate and, and see if there's anything that the Alberta government can do um, about this. Mm -hmm. But you know, mm -hmm. one short advice that I, I would give to Danielle Smith is act quickly, quickly. And act, and act decisively. Uh, don't waffle um, on, uh, you know, or backtrack or give these people some mercy or some second chance because these individuals have been committing crimes. They've been killing patients. They've been stealing millions and millions of dollars from physician patient care funds for years. And they've been doing this out in the open they're not afraid because they know that the legal system and in and the judicial system in Alberta protects them. So they know that the law society will never come after the lawyers. Yeah. They, know it. they have immunity and they know it. They're yeah. in a position of power. And oh, my goodness. I tell you, uh, Dr. William Mackis, your story is um, outstanding, but heartbreaking at the same time, because it. It, it really represents corruption at, at such a high level. However, I think there's hope. Thank goodness yeah. for Danielle Smith. I think there's a bright future in store for Albertans. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I do hope that you're able to work in some capacity with her, at least impart all the information that you have. Yeah, uh, and honestly, I used to say that, you know, if, if, if anyone took my legal documents that I have, they would end the careers of Rachel Notley, Sarah Hoffman, and really all of NDP for a generation because, yeah. um, you know, the people that Rachel Notley and Sarah Hoffman appointed at Alberta Health Services are the people that have commit, been committing crimes against Alberta cancer patients and against Alberta COVID patients, um, you know, for the past uh, several years, uh, and they continue to do so with impunity. And so, you know, I've, I've always said that if anybody just had the will, they could literally end Alberta NDP as we know it 
uh, tomorrow, you know, that they could certainly end the careers, the political careers of Rachel Notley and Sarah Hoffman, who are in government solely because they're being protected by the media who refuse to, to, to really report on this. Now, I've been in court almost 20 times. Uh, I've been before over a dozen Alberta judges, so I know the Alberta judges very well. Some of them are really good, some of them are really bad, and some of them are just outright corrupt. So it's a mixed bag when it comes to Alberta judges. And I've interacted with Alberta Health Services lawyers for six years uh, and college lawyers for the past six years, whether it's Craig Boyer for the college, whether it's Mylene Tiesen for the college, whether it's uh, Mark Raven Jackson for Alberta Health Services and Field Law LLP, which provides all the legal services in my case for Alberta Health Services. These are some of the worst individuals, some of the worst human beings you've ever seen in your life. They've threatened my family repeatedly. They've threatened my children. They've threatened my family in writing. The Law Society of Alberta knows about this. They receive the documents. The Edmonton Police knows about this. The RCMP knows about this. They all know about it. They all protect each other, right? And so Danielle Smith has her work cut out for her. Um, I definitely have high hopes for her. And if she surrounds herself with the right people and, and really acts decisively and swiftly, she can cut the, cut the head off the snake uh, at the college and at AHS, because once you remove the top people from the position of power, once you remove their access to lawyers, these people have, they, they can't do anything on their own. Yeah. They, they really rely on the structure that's been put in place for them and the lawyers that they rely on to, to commit their crimes. On their own, these doctors are grossly incompetent. Mm -hmm. Verna Yu is an incompetent doctor. Dina Hinshaw is an incompetent doctor. Dr. Michael Cafaro is an incompetent doctor. These doctors cannot do anything on their own unless it's done by their lawyers for them. And then they rubber stamp whatever legal documents are put in front of them. They probably don't even read it and put their name on it and pretend like it's them making the decisions that Hinshaw is making decisions, you know, that Dr. Michael Cafaro at the college is making the decisions. They're mm -hmm. not. I mean, the, you know, that's it's the lawyers that are doing the work for them. So Danielle Smith has to act quickly, decisively. And and here's another thing I think it's it's um, and I don't know if it's feasible, but I, I would suggest that Danielle Smith at least consider exposing some of the scandals that have happened at Alberta Health Services and the college so Albertans know what's actually happening. Now, she doesn't have to expose what's happened to me. Uh, she can expose what's happened to other doctors. There's Dr. Robert uh, Nordal, who had the exact same thing happen to him. Now, he was, he was treating cancer patients with cutting-edge gamma knife uh, treatments. He was treating a brain cancer patients with gamma knife. And what they did was they dragged him out of, and, and they actually dragged, dragged him out while he was doing a procedure. They paid him out his contract right away. So they didn't uh, frame him with a fake complaint like they framed me. And uh, they said, here's your money. Here's your severance payout and get out of here. And he said, no. And he fought them for three years. He fought them through a different process than I did. Um, because they made the mistake of suspending his hospital privileges immediately. So he actually went to the government and went through the hospital privileges appeal board, which ordered AHS to take him back. AHS refused. The hospital privileges appeal board went to court and had the court order AHS to take him back. And you know how long that took? 
it took four years for him to be able to get back to his office to work. Same HS executives who did it to me, did it to him. And in the court decision ordering him back to work, the same head of HS Cancer Care appointed by Rachel Notley, Dr. Matthew Parliament, you know what he said under oath? He said, HS makes $15 billion in revenue. Now, this is the money that the provincial government gives to HS every, this is taxpayer money. This isn't revenue. He said, we make $15 billion in revenue. If we, you know, screwed over this one doctor and we have to pay him uh, penalties, HS has more than enough money to, to cover the penalties that we'll have to pay in this case. He said this under oath and the court recorded it in their court decision. Uh, so this is the attitude that, you know, we face with Alberta's healthcare executives. They think that the taxpayer money, the, the 20 plus billion dollars that goes into healthcare, they think it's their money. They think it's their yeah. revenue. They think it's like a business that they run, that this is their revenue and that they can go ahead and make multi-billion dollar deals with pharmaceutical companies and with construction companies and that they're the gods of of healthcare in Alberta they make the decisions and that you know Jason Kenney and Tyler Shandro the health minister they can go pound sand because they're more powerful than the premier of Alberta yeah. right so Danielle Smith can really chop off the the head of the snake um cut off the AHS management cut off the uh well, you really can't cut off the leadership at the college. You have to dissolve the college. And, yeah. and I think that's why she said that, because imagine she could have just said, oh, well, I'm going to fire the, the college registrar. She didn't say that. Why? Because the registrar doesn't run the college. Yeah. The college is a private corporation run by lawyers. That's why she said the college has to be dissolved entirely. Yeah. And, and, and really, the in, entire institution has to be dissolved top to bottom, reconstitute a new medical board, start, start over, start, start fresh, start clean put in new competent people. And this will be popular with Albertans. Um, if she does expose just a fraction of the scandals that have been happening in healthcare, and really most of it been being done by Rachel Notley's people, um, this will be very popular with Albertans. Uh, any changes that she makes at Alberta Health Services will be very popular with Albertans. And I suspect that this will significantly increase her popularity all across Alberta. And really, I personally believe that she has everything that it takes to completely wipe the floor with Rachel Notley in 2023 and make NDP completely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. NDP is extremely dangerous right now. They've become very extremist. Uh, Rachel Notley is talking about creating teams uh, that will go door to door vaccinating anyone who's still unvaccinated for COVID-19. She wants to go, she wants to set up uh, healthcare teams that will go door to door uh, unannounced, uh, trying to vaccinate people who still haven't been vaccinated. She has supported vaccine mandates, illegal vaccine mandates um, in Alberta's healthcare when we still had them. She was fully supportive of unvaccinated nurses getting fired and having their careers destroyed uh, and she continues to push mRNA vaccines, vaccine mandates, and God only knows what she's going to do if she gets into power in 2023 in Alberta. She's going to bring everything back. She's going to bring vaccine mandates back. She's going to empower the AHS executives and college executives that are threatening doctors and, and suppressing doctors that are speaking out about uh, mRNA vaccine injuries. 
And so we're going to face an, 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 an terrible nightmare if Rachel Notley gets back into power. Yeah. Well, I think um, there is hope. I think it's very, uh, there's room for optimism with Daniel Smith, like you say. And I think if she does expose some of the corruption and, and opens Albertan's eyes as to what has been going on behind the scene, that will put her in a better position that people understand why she is dismantling the existing system and starting from scratch. I agree with you, that's necessary. Well, Dr. William Mackis, this has been an incredible time together. Uh, you have really been through the ringer and I just really admire your, um, how would I say, doggedness and determination. And the fact that you're self-representing yourself at this point, you, how clever. So keep up the fight. Uh, your story is wonderful. You are uh, a great Canadian hero in my mind, and I'm sure other listeners would agree. Um, so keep up the fight. Keep on exposing the truth. Uh, keep up. Keep on digging on the, the deaths of physicians, because I think the whole world is watching, not yeah, just so Canadians, great. but it sounds as though you're, you're gathering data on a country that everyone around the world is interested in. So great work. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will talk again. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you.